This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. A lot to get to this hour and the next four hours for that matter. First of all, we are keeping an eye on uh, what is going on in Florida. I have a lot of friends in Florida, uh, some family in Florida, and a lot of uh, New Yorkers that uh, that I've known over the years have moved down to Florida. In fact, my, my father and stepmother are in Florida right now. Now, they're in the Disney World area in Orlando, so I don't think they're affected by any of these inclement weather. But I did make an effort to check in with a lot of the people that I know in Florida to see how they were doing with uh, this forthcoming storm, Ian. And it is something that uh, I think a lot of people are very concerned about and a lot of people are very worried about. In Tampa, for instance, officials there are warning residents who are thinking about riding out the storm. I think that is a awful idea. So one of the things I thought we might do is we do have a tremendous number of listeners in Florida, including in the area that's affected by this hurricane. A friend of mine, a talk show host on another station, he actually lives right in Tampa. He actually came up to New York to ride out the storm, and he's hoping he can go back to his house and there's minimal damage. I'd love to know how things are going for you if you are in the Florida area. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you've evacuated, if you're not evacuating, which I think is not a good idea, this is going to be a Category 3 hurricane, uh, Hurricane Ian, and it is intensifying on its path to Florida. Now, normally extreme weather events is not the uh, the kind of thing that I spend much time talking about, but I lived through Hurricane Sandy, which was incredible, and I saw the damage that that did in my hometown, and I saw the flooding and the lives lost, and it was horrific. So all of a sudden, whenever I see, I'm always a little hesitant to buy into the media hype on this because, and I've covered this with Lloyd Lindsay Young and others, but I think what ends up happening far too often when it comes to snowstorms, when it comes to tropical storms, when it comes to hurricanes, is that people tend to, on television, they hype it up because what do you do? You keep watching. If uh, everybody says, well, this storm's not going to be that bad, That's not a great way to keep people tuned in to the television. So I do think there's always an element of hype, and I'm hesitant to add to it. But at the same time, uh, I'm always interested in the human toll here. So if you're in the Florida, if you're in Florida, especially in the area um, affected by this hurricane, uh, I would love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. By the way... uh, I saw a very interesting article um, that uh, that had to do with picking baby names that were too similar to hurricanes. And 
you know, I, I was reminded of a friend of mine. I had a friend of mine named Katrina. And after Hurricane Katrina, there was not a person that this young woman could meet for the rest of her life that wouldn't make some sort of a hurricane reference. I mean, there was she would make a restaurant reservation and they would say, oh, like the hurricane? Yes, like the hurricane. And I got to think that was really tough for her. So after Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Louisiana, this is 17 years ago. It's hard to believe. 83% fewer babies were named Katrina in 2015 than in 2005. Think about that. 83% fewer. Major hurricanes stick in the American public consciousness with consequences for a long time. The names of the deadliest U.S. mainland hurricanes all became much less popular in the years after the landfall. So I I am also curious if you are someone that would not name your baby a certain name because of uh, the hurricane implications of it. For instance, this is going to be Hurricane Ian. If Hurricane Ian is banned and it results in a whole lot of property damage and a whole, uh, God forbid, a whole lot of lives lost and is costly, would you be less likely to name your baby Ian? 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. It's funny, I was on a group text with, I believe, all of my siblings-in-law yesterday. And they were all going back and forth trading weather maps about the path of this this storm, Hurricane Ian. And my brother-in-law actually said that um, uh, he went, he, he said, Ian, surely he can't be that bad. I had a friend named Ian, and he never destroyed anything. In fact, he was also a Red Sox fan. My brother-in-law, one of them, is a Red Sox fan. A fine chap, uh, my wife remarks. He does sound harmless. And then, uh, lo and behold, uh, my sister-in-law, Sharon, writes, Hurricanes that start with I have been the most destructive. Isn't that interesting? Uh, 800-848-9222. I'd love to hear from you if you're in Florida or if you fled from Florida. I'd also love to hear if there are implications for the future of names in your life as it relates to these hurricanes. Let me begin with Mike in Florida. Mike, where in Florida are you? Mike? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Now I got you. Hold on, hold on. You got me? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in Claremont, which is about 12 miles from Disney World. I actually work security at Disney. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, if you see my father and stepmother out there, my dad's tall. He's 6'2", he, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll notice him. Give him my best. So, uh, so right now, we just got some steady rain. Not much going on at all. Um, but you know what? We're Floridians, and we're prepared for this. But you're not supposed to be that badly affected by the hurricane, are you? a new track it's going to go directly over us oh it is nearly right over us oh yeah. really oh, yeah. okay but yeah. uh, but yeah. now what i was seeing is that the areas that are going to be badly hit that's mostly the tampa area for instance is that is that accurate that, that's the storm surge that's the storm so, surge so you're just yeah, gonna, you're going to get what you're going to get rain mostly 
heavy rain, heavy wind. We're talking about 12 to 15 inches of rain and heavy, heavy, heavy winds here. And yeah, tornadoes. Yeah, yeah. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Everybody here is calm. They're cool. They're collective. You know, the store, the stores today. I went to Walmart. It was, it was, it was, you know, it was fine. Everybody got their provisions, and uh, you know, we're just waiting for it to come in tomorrow. I took two stray cats in from the street, so I have my other two cats here, so they're not happy about that. And uh, you know, we're just waiting. Were you in Florida during Hurricane Andrew? Yeah. You were? Mike? Can you hear me? Yeah, Mike, oh. you're coming in and out. I don't know what's going on. But um, the, um, the, the, how does the kind of the prelude to this storm compared to what you experienced in the run-up to Hurricane Andrew? Well, honestly, I think this time we're a little bit more prepared. You know, the governor has put a lot of uh, faith in, in the state. He's he's had tons of hearings and, uh, you know, um, press conferences about what's going to happen if this and that happens. And I think everybody here is just very calm. Like, I've been outside tonight. It's just like a regular night. You know, it's just it's 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 it looks OK. Well, that's I'm happy to hear that. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. This is Anna. Uh, This is a clip from NBC News. Uh, This is Anna and a bunch of other panicked Floridians talking to NBC News about how they're viewing the hurricane. Some families now making the decision to hit the road. I don't know how how good of a job that's going to do. Anna Griggs is evacuating to a hotel. You want some help? No, I'm fine. Okay. The mother of two teenagers lives blocks from the bay. They're not sure what they'll even return to. You stand to lose a good chunk of your livelihood if there's damage to this house. We do, yes. Is that your biggest concern? I think it is. It's partly that, but it's also the fact that this is our home. This is their Mm -hmm. roots. This is attachment. Yeah. And that could be severely damaged, if not destroyed. Yeah. Supplies are in high demand. Residents waiting in lines for hours for sandbags. How long have you been waiting this morning? I've been here about since 5 a.m. About 5.30. And water supplies running thin. I just got here and it's kind of insane that there's no water here. Challenges all unfolding with a storm whose wrath has yet to be fully felt. It's really scary. I think it's not so much about losing your stuff. I think it's just about this is a home. And Mm. that would be really sad if that happened. You know, it's interesting. Um... I was t- we were, I was talking to some friends of ours and their their parents live in Florida and this is what if it's it's a couple right and um, this is what uh, my friend Danielle said she said we spent the last twenty four hours pressuring his parents meaning her in laws to evacuate their home on the actual water a river off the Gulf of Mexico that is literally in the exact eye of the storm it finally sunk in and they've decided to leave. They were going to go to my parents' house because her parents also live in Florida because, after all, these people are New Yorkers. And where, what, where do all the New Yorkers go? They go to Florida, which I just do not understand. Um, but since that is right on the Atlantic, they're instead going to stay at a hotel more inland in Fort Lauderdale. They're currently crossing Alligator Alley, which is now being shut down because of tornadoes from hurricane winds. We told them to leave yesterday, but they were adamant that they were going to ride it out. Thank God we eventually were able to talk sense into them. You know, I have never understood the people that are going to take the mentality of I'm not leaving, I'm not evacuating. And I remember Mike Bloomberg used to be big with this. And I think even de Blasio, when he was mayor, used to make similar public pronouncements. When you don't evacuate, 
when there's a serious, dangerous storm. And really, honestly, I think if they give an evacuation order, even if it's a little erring uh, uh, on the side of caution, you should evacuate. And I recognize there's some risks to evacuating because we saw we've seen repeatedly when people are asked to evacuate, we see people rob their houses which is the last thing anybody wants, and certainly not me. But what Bloomberg used to point out, and he was exactly right, is that if you don't evacuate and then you get stuck, you're then putting the lives of more people in danger who then have to go and rescue you. So if you make the decision, you may think you're being brave, you may think you're being tough, you may think you, you don't want to leave your house. I get all of those feelings. But... It's selfish. It really is quite selfish. And there are a lot of examples of people who didn't evacuate or didn't leave when it was their time to do it. I remember my friend Curtis Lee was father, Chester, during one of the hurricanes. I don't know if it was Hurricane Sandy. It may have been, uh, but it might have been Irma or uh, I don't know. It might have been one of the many hurricanes that we've dealt with over the years. He didn't want to evacuate his house in Canarsie. He refused to move. Basically, people went to his house to try and get him out of there. And Chester Sliwa, who was very tough, actually much tougher than Curtis, he he told them where to go. He said, no, I know this house. I know it's got a very unique system. And I was here when it was built. I know all about it. And I'm going to stay. And he stayed and he was fine. But a lot of people stay with that same intention and they're not necessarily fine. I remember I had a very, I had a friend, she passed away, unfortunately, and she was in her eighties during Hurricane Sandy. Now maybe her late seventies, but uh, and she lived with her brother, who was in his 80s. And the two of them, in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, they had no power. And most of us who lived in in Staten Island had no power after Hurricane Sandy for days, for days. I mean, I spent that time living at the radio station, basically. But um, these were two older folks. And I said, please, l- l- let me take you somewhere with power. They refused to move. They refuse to move. Some people just don't want to move. Um, it is interesting, though, what effect this will have on um, where that we go with names from here. 800-848-9222. When my brother-in-law was saying how this hurricane sounds harmless, and my wife was saying this hurricane sounds harmless because it's named Ian, it reminded me of the scene in uh, Get Him to the Greek. Did you ever see Get Him to the Greek? Get Him to the Greek is sort of a pseudo-sequel to Forgetting uh, to uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was a great picture. Forgetting Sarah Marshall was a great picture. Get Him to the Greek is a very good picture. I, th- I think Forgetting Sarah Marshall is a little bit better. But Get Him to the Greek is the best type of sequel. Why? What do I mean by that? It's the best type of sequel in that you don't need to have seen the first film in order to follow the story. That's the kind of sequel that's done well. If a sequel stands on its own, you don't have to see the movie that came before it. That's a good film. And there's this one scene. I don't want to give away too much of it, but um, the the character Russell Brand is the star of the film or one of the stars of the film. And his father is Colm Meany and they're doing drugs and they give a drug to Jonah Hill. And it looks like a, a, a joint, like a regular marijuana cigarette. And all of a sudden, Jonah Hill, they call it a Jeffrey, and he smokes it without ever thinking what it, to ask what it is. He just assumes it's marijuana. And basically, he asks, what is a Jeffrey, and why is it called a Jeffrey? Here's the explanation from Russell Brand's character and his father, Colm Meany. Why the f- 
is it called a Jeffrey? Because who could be scared of a Jeffrey? Yeah, Jeffrey's just this nice bloke from down the road, isn't he? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Hello, I'm Jeffrey. I've just moved in. Yes, I'm Jeffrey. Jeffrey. My wife has got Veracruz veins. <laughs> it goes to show you, naming really does mean a lot. There was once a there was a a, a short um, anthology series where and I don't remember the name of the series. I'll look it up. But Walter Matthau plays Adam, and Carol Burnett plays Eve. Ed Asner plays God. I only saw it once. I saw it's called the side this side of Eden. And it's from, I saw it probably about 30, 30 years ago, maybe more. And it was really well done. And God, played by Ed Asner, is visiting Adam and Eve. And he's very impressed with Adam, played by Walter Matthau, with his Hebrew. And he says, you know, Adam, I can't believe the rate that you're naming things. You're just great. He said, I could just invent things willy-nilly and you'll you'll come up with a name for them. It's great. He says, uh, and Ed Asner, God, Whip something up. He says, all right, what would you call this? And uh, Adam looks at it and he says, that's mashed potatoes. And then Carol, um, Carol Burnett, Eve, takes a big spoonful of it, eats it, and she spits it out. She says, that's revolting. And she, he, Adam says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let, let me try it. Let me try it. And then he takes a spoonful of it and he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not mashed potatoes. We're going to call that an ice cream sundae. And they all take a big spoonful of it, and they agree that once it's called the proper name, it tastes a lot better. The point being, when something's named properly, it's a lot easier to – it has a big impact on it. You ever notice – when I was a single guy, I used to always be fascinated, and we've done whole segments on this, on the fact that girls with the same name often had the same characteristics. Either girls with a certain name were always pretty – or girls with a certain name were always heavy, or girls with a certain name were always uh, very nice, or girls with other names were uh, kind of uh, promiscuous. And I I always was fascinated at that. And again, that's getting a little off the beaten path, but I am curious if you would allow a hurricane to change what you would name your child. 800-848-9222. If there was a Hurricane Carmine that killed 100 people, I guarantee you my wife would have raised an objection to us naming our son Carmine. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in a moment. John is in New Jersey. John, I understand you're actually uh, a professional weatherman. Is that accurate? I am, and I just wanted to call to give you an update because you were talking about your parents. We have some new model data that shows potential rainfall in Orlando at 20 inches. What's going to happen with this storm? It's much like Hurricane Charlie coming in well south of Tampa. It's bad news for everybody. But the problem with this storm, it takes its time. It sits and stalls. Tropical force winds set in tomorrow. Hurricane force winds by tomorrow night. This could be a 36-hour duration event. Mm. That's why you're going to have flooding. You're going to have multiple tide cycles with storm surge approaching or exceeding 10 to 15 feet. And then you're also going to have, you were mentioning your friends uh, on the east side, we've already had multiple confirmed radar confirmed tornadoes. Active tornado watch continues for central and south Florida until 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. That will be extended. These things are notorious for spawning tornadoes. 
So there are all these facets of potential destruction. That's why I have to agree with you about these evacuations. I feel for people making that horrible decision, but now it's almost done. If you haven't made the move, you Mm. just got to stay where you are because, like you said, even on the east side, just it's getting very difficult to get around, and now you just got to buckle up. John, um, what is the worst of this storm? When is that going to? When is that going to happen? What's the worst of this, as it stands now? Tomorrow, I think tomorrow is going to be the worst of it. But what's going to happen is it's going to take its time getting through all of the peninsula. Jacksonville's not out of the woods. This is going to be a big storm for Georgia, South Carolina. It will take it uh, six days before we even see a drop out of it up here. So I think the worst in really big sense is going to be tomorrow with the arrival of the winds, with the beginning of the storm surge and the slow-moving nature that allows that pileup effect of the waves, and then uh, wind damage. We we ran a model tonight that has 97-mile-an-hour winds tomorrow in Fort Myers. And then that that wow. kind of windshield will slow down, but you still could have 70-mile-an-hour winds uh, close to Orlando. And, and, John, I can say who you are, right? I mean, you don't you don't care. I'm not going to get mean, in trouble. I mean, I, I don't think I'll get in trouble. I work for <laughs> – we're not competitors. I'm at Channel 2, and I just happened to be listening. And what struck me was that your parents are in Orlando. And for a while, Orlando was the safe move. Now, with that shift to the south – Orlando is going to be dealing with a terrific flooding event. So, again, we can take away the word storm surge from Orlando. Clearly, that's just geography. But it's going to be the issue of persistent wind and flooding rains in Orlando. Well, so I I watch uh, you on CBS uh, very often. Always very impressed with the accuracy of your forecasts and the tone with which you take them. I mentioned earlier how I I do think, not you, but some on TV, not so much radio, but on TV, they do tend to hype up these storms for rating's sake. Am I just being a a media conspiracy theorist, or have you seen some of that? Not on your station, but elsewhere. You know, I I, I can speak to that because, uh, you know, I will say the weather people community, the weather, the forecasters, the meteorologists in New York, it's a very collegiate community. We all know each other. We all like each other. And we kind of just have a job to do. I think at times when you get a compelling piece of video, it's like any kind of video, whether it's crime video or weather video, what we tend to do is cycle through it and repeat it. And so there you get this sense that, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. But a storm like this, you know, we kind of have to say it straight out, and I think Governor DeSantis is doing a good job, too. And you listen to the mayor of Fort Myers, and you listen to some of these other mayors saying, you know, people are going to die in this storm. You hate to be so ominous, but when you have a storm surge of 15 feet, no one can survive that. But it is that delicate balance. You know, it's your business, our business. You know, we want people to watch and listen, so you have to strike that balance. With a storm like this, it's just like, here are the facts. Here's what it's doing right now. As a Category 1, look what it did to Cuba. We did a graphic earlier in this week. I don't know if I got in trouble. And it's it's strengthened since since it hit Cuba. It's picked up strength. Yes. And don't forget, Sandy was a Cat 1. So you can't let the cat fool you. So, you know, we we talk, we make a lot about the eye wall and about, 
that that's important and where it strikes, that's important. But when you look at the scope and size of this storm and the many facets of this storm as it slows down over the peninsula, I mean, obviously, it is a big story. John Elliott, uh, we'll be watching you on CBS News. Whenever you're up late, uh, please feel free to call in. It is a, a thrill to talk to you. I'm a big fan. Well, and I mean, seriously, all the best to your, you know, uh, dad and, uh, and and mom there. Thank you. Yes, I just texted them to uh, to check in with them and see how they're doing. I, I appreciate it very much, John. Good. Good night. Thank you. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the Struts. Put your hands up. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, just join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. I'll tell you, we're going to get back to your calls in uh, just a moment. I uh, was really impressed at the interview that John Katsimatidis did with Donald Trump yesterday. And uh, I um, I know a lot of the other shows have been excerpting portions of this interview, but that's because it was pretty comprehensive, pretty lengthy, and pretty wide-ranging. And you could tell that um, John Katzmatidis and Donald Trump have a lengthy history. I think they go back over 40 years, and you could tell that they have a chemistry that comes across when they do this interview. I was impressed not only at the—and obviously John is not only my boss, but I, I, he's somebody that I'm very close to. I consider him family— and I'm a big I was certainly a big Trump supporter back in the day. I voted for him twice and was for Trump for president going back to 2000. So I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm not crazy about some of the things that Trump has done since the election. But I thought this was kind of both of them at their best, not only in terms of the topics that they covered, but in terms of how they sounded. And, uh, for instance, you know, Trump played all the hits. You know, he was going on. They were talking about the drug problem that this country is facing, something that we've spent a lot of time on this program if talking one about. one drug dealer kills during the course of his life, his or her life, 500 people, then it's actually a very, very good thing and a very nice thing. We're going to save a lot of lives. But there's no – these committees that form and – a lot of them are people that you know. They're dilettantes and they're debutantes and they're people that you don't, you know, that don't know a thing about this and don't really want to know. A lot of them are on there for publicity purposes. If you don't have the death penalty for drug dealers, you'll never stop. If you do, if, if it's a meaningful death penalty for drug dealers, you will knock out 85% of the crime in this country in one day. I disagree with that, right? Uh, but at least Trump is keeping the issue of the drug epidemic that we've been dealing with on the forefront. 
I think if you look at a big poor, poor, a big part of the cause of the drug problem that we've had in this country, the problem is not necessarily the dealer on the street corner in a in a trench coat trying to coax a 13-year-old in, after school into trying some drugs. Here, I'll give you the first one for free. No. Now, it's not the kind of after-school special caricature of a drug dealer. Unfortunately, a lot, not everything, but a lot of the problem has been caused by corporate drug dealers. Big Pharma. Big Pharma and their manipulation of doctors, their bribery of not only doctors, but hospitals, hospital administrators, pharmacists, to push their products, their lies about the damage that their products like OxyContin, not just OxyContin, but that's one of the more prominent examples. The Sackler family is one of the biggest drug dealers and one of the biggest killers that there is. So until we're ready to put the Sackler, unless we're ready to give the Sackler family the death penalty, I don't think uh, that uh, the death penalty for drug dealers is a good idea. But I'm all for having that debate, right? You, ca- I can understand where Trump's coming from. I'm all for having that debate. And uh, I learned a lot listening to the two of them talk. They also spent some time talking a bit about electric cars. Now, we've seen, because of high energy prices and a lot of other things, um, the concerns about greenhouse gas emissions, we've seen a lot of people start going towards electric cars. Well, that was one of the things that Trump brought up, and he sounded a lot like John Katzmatidis. He echoed a lot of the things that John has been saying about the dangers of where some of the parts of these electric cars come from. And by the way, the electric cars don't go very long. I have friends that bought electric cars. They don't want them because they can only drive for two hours. They, you know, they want to take a trip. They can't stop. They don't want to stop and have it charged for four hours. The whole thing is crazy what we're doing. And uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. The guy who really spoke for me is a fellow that was in studio with them. He's a friend of mine. He listens to this show. He's called in from time to time. Craig Eaton, who's a lawyer and uh, he's a regular co-host of that uh, Cats at Night show, former chairman of the Republican Party in Brooklyn, but he supported Democrats as well. He's a pretty straight shooter. He summed up in nine seconds my takeaway with the interview. This is what Craig Eaton said. You see how focused he is. The contrast between how focused he is and when we see the gibberish from our current president, there's such a such a difference, such a difference. Well, actually, that wasn't the portion of the uh, the Craig Eaton comments that I was referring to. But the uh, portion that um, that Craig Eaton said was you didn't hear President Trump go on and on about election fraud and 2020 and harping on the election was stolen. All these people uh, voted illegally. He didn't mention that at all. He stayed razor focused on the issues. It sounded very sane, very sober, very on message. And um, not meandering at all, as he gets sometimes in some of his rallies these days. Very on message, very focused on the issues, and on a great phone line as well, which is always important. All right, 800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Tony, where in Florida are you? Well, I live in central Florida in the Ocala National Forest. We're about 50 miles away from uh, Disney World as the crow flies. Gotcha. Okay. I love that term, as the crow flies. I always make a note to myself to use that term more, and then I always forget to use it. So I'm glad you're you're using it. How is the weather by where you are now? 
right now it's fine. I've been here for 40 years, and we've gone through maybe 10 or 12 hurricanes. And I'm counting even the ones where we got just the beater bars. But one year we got hit three times in one uh, season. And we had damage to the roof. Most of the damage was always from wind. Um, and we live in the forest, so we're surrounded by trees. And let me tell you, it's kind of terrifying when you got really high winds and the rain is going sideways and you see those trees bending. And where do you think that, um, where do you think that, uh, you're not in an area that's slated for evacuation, right? No. And if it was, it has been before, but we've got cats and dogs. Ah, and, see, uh, the pets are always, that's always tricky. Yes. Now, I and think we always stay. I always, I, I heard I, Kirstie Alley, and not that Kirstie Alley is necessarily the best, best source of hurricane and emergency information, but Kirstie Alley put something out on social media that said, a lot of the shelters these days allow you to take your pets with you. Has that been your yeah. experience? Yeah, they do. But we have so many. We have, well, at the time of the storms, we had eight cats and three dogs. Yeah. Okay. But that's too many to get to a shelter, I suppose. Yeah. I don't yeah. even think we have the cat carriers for the cats. Uh, well, that's right. Hey, uh, Tony, keep us posted on this and uh, stay safe, stay dry. Call us back tomorrow, okay? Let us know how it's going. Will do. Thanks, Tony. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Uh, Before I get to Florida on these electric vehicles, I've heard some things where the buses that have the electrical batteries, uh, if they get in a collision, they can basically, you know, just burn up like in, in minutes, which is pretty scary to the point where people can't even get off the bus. That's pretty scary, so you can look into that. But I was thinking, why would someone chance? You'd never know. You could never calculate what a storm is going to do. You know, what? what's the idea of being like Teddy Roosevelt and riding it out? I mean, how is that fun when your roof might get blown off, your windows blown in, or like that lady, a tree could fly into the house? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, you're right. And now, but I listened to Tony there, and she makes a pretty compelling case. She doesn't want to leave her eight pets. So, what do you do in that instance? Uh, you have to look at your own life. Uh, number one. Uh, I mean, you, yeah. you want to yeah, live to fight true. another day. That's true. If uh, you're not alive, who's going to take care of your pets, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. that's a good point. Hey, thanks, Joe. 800-848-9222. Sean is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sean. Love you. Thank you. Love you also. You, you should be doing the Jimmy Kimmel show, not Jimmy Kimmel. You know what? Sorry. Well, I mean, wouldn't that be awkward, though, if the show was still called the Jimmy Kimmel show and out comes Frank Morano? Here, we'll I'm Frank Morano hosting the Jimmy Kimmel show. Well, no, I'm just saying you're, we have to change the name. Oh, Jimmy Kimmel, and, and just to bring up a quick point about Jimmy Kimmel, oh, I'm from Brooklyn. Listen, if you leave Brooklyn when you're five with your family, you're not from Brooklyn. So, <laughs> you know what? Anyway, my, fair yes. enough. But fair enough. Go ahead. I'll anyway, let, let you make your comment. Florida, Florida, you know, these hurricanes, you always have to – it always brings out how the failure of our infrastructure – I mean, uh, look, look, go back to, you know, obviously all the storms. We know all their names. And, I mean, I saw some pictures of Cuba and Puerto Rico. Oh, my God, it breaks my heart. I mean, Puerto Rico is a Democrat governor, and the place looked like 1930. I mean, it's these storms. People, you have to prepare. And the lady, she doesn't want to leave her pets. 
Listen, the guy said it before. You're no good. If you die, right. what good is your pet? Right. Well, I actually, I actually said that. But you're, you're, yeah, it's a good point. Sean, have you ever have you ever gotten uh, one of these evacuation orders? I realize it's more common in Florida than it is in Brooklyn, yeah. but you have you? Well, well, listen, I remember Sandy, mm-hmm. and I mean at that time uh, I was just going moving to Staten Island, and I remember the power went out as soon as I was going over the bridge. And you couldn't see anything. It was pitch black from the Verrazano looking to Staten Island. I was like, oh. I, I was waiting for, waiting, uh, I was ready for Armageddon. Anyone yeah. along Father Capadano was in the dark. Oh, no. And it I was mean, scary. now here we are, here we are today, uh, just Florida. And these, these, you have to take the, the warning seriously and you have to get out. You cannot uh, stay. There's no sense. See, and my other point I want to make about that Queens lady who got beat up. It's a disgrace. Yeah, well, do you strike me, Sean, as a, a – you're a lifelong New Yorker like I am, I'm assuming, right? Yes, and I hate these people all for Brooklyn. If you didn't go to high school, <laughs> you're not from Brooklyn. Okay, fair enough. I get that. But, Sean, yeah. so you, I'm guessing you're not one of these guys that's going to be moving to Florida anytime soon. You know, I t- listen, I love Florida. I've been there. I can't take – come uh, uh, Memorial Day, it's, uh, it's 100 degrees. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wonder, and thanks for the call, Sean, appreciate it. I do wonder if all of these New Yorkers who have moved down to Florida because they like having dinner at 4.30 in the afternoon and they like the low taxes and they like the political climate and they like the fact that you have to have air conditioning on 10 months out of the year and or, or if you don't have your air conditioning on you wake up sweating in the middle of the night even if you're sleeping just in boxer shorts i do wonder if all these people that love florida and love moving to florida i wonder if any of these new yorkers that have moved down there are starting to regret it because I, i'm i'm a new yorker through and through i'm not moving to florida anytime soon again it's a great state. I got a lot of friends down there, a lot of family down there, but I'm not moving down there. It's uh, it's just too much. And I do wonder if, uh, you know, my fr- I texted my friend Gary, who was a New Yorker who moved down there. I, ch- I checked on a lot of my Floridian friends today. And basically, he evacuated where he lives because he's right in the path of the storm. And then he went and took shelter with, I think, his his daughter. And they're now in the path of the storm. And for him, it's bringing back a lot of memories of what he went through during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I'm thinking, Gary, you should have stayed here. 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, can, I have, can I have two short questions? Sure, go ahead. Made a comment afterwards. So the one is, on your knowledge, if you know, John Cosimitidis is a good friend with Lahitisha James. Does he plan to invite her to the roundtable and talk to the taxpayers about her common sense? Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't know. I mean, I know he's he's he knows Letitia James a long time. I wouldn't be surprised if he's already proffered an invitation to Letitia James. And that's honestly, Leo, what's so great about that show, because that has got to be the only radio show in America where there's a chance that on Tuesday you hear Donald Trump and on Wednesday you hear Letitia James. I know. And the second question, if I can show, sure. I, I really mean it. Does the uh, Guardian Angels still exist in New York? Because I never hear Curtis talk about it, and he has a lot of hours during the week on the radio. And uh, none of the cases when there was something going on of Subway, would somebody mention that uh, the Guardian Angels was part of any of the actions? 
Well, as far yes, they definitely do still. They definitely still do exist in New York. I don't know, um, you know, I don't, I don't know organizationally what their status is, but I see them. Yeah, they, I do see them. And maybe Curtis doesn't talk about them because he doesn't necessarily want to use the radio as a platform for promoting his own group. But I feel like he does talk about a lot of the good work that they do. Uh, I still see the Guardian Angels, absolutely. Uh, all right, hey, one quick piece of audio that I did want to play is uh, Tulsi Gabbard was speaking at uh, something called Revolution 2022, and she made some great points. Now, Tulsi Gabbard is a former congresswoman from Hawaii. I wish she was running for president in 2024. I don't care if she ran as a Democrat, an independent, a Republican. I would support her enthusiastically with whatever party she ran on. Because this is exactly the kind of leader that we need. And uh, not only does she have a lot of views that I happen to agree with, but just in terms of tone, I really think the things that she says about issues like free speech, this is exactly the direction the country needs to be going. Uh, So this is uh, Tulsi Gabbard speaking at Revolution 2022. I had this on my list yesterday, and I didn't get to it, so I wanted to make sure we got to it today in our first hour. Open discourse, debate, and dialogue. This is the heart of our democracy, this marketplace of ideas and our ability to exercise our rights and freedoms to participate in this. We are stronger as a nation when we do. But not only are they willing to stay out of this discussion. They are actively trying to silence those of us who are very involved in it and actively try to censor those who dare to challenge them. And I want to point out Tulsi Gabbard, she's exactly right there on the issue of free speech. She in Congress was a progressive Democrat. In 2016, she was a vice chairman of the DNC. She resigned her leadership at, at the Democratic National Committee because she didn't want to support Hillary Clinton. She had endorsed Bernie Sanders, and uh, she couldn't go along with supporting Hillary Clinton, and she resigned as vice chair of the DNC. She was on a career fast track in the Democratic Party. A young, very attractive, a woman of color. They couldn't give her enough exposure until she deviated from the mainstream orthodoxy of the Democratic Party. So she's terrific. She's somebody that uh, if she ran as a third-party candidate in 2022, excuse me, 2024, wild horses could not stop me from voting for her and contributing to her. You know what my one issue with her is? I still cannot understand why she has not come on this show. It, It confounds me. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to get into some other fun issues as well and a bunch of other things. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Check out the improvement to crush the 
hip-hop meets house, you can't stop it. We rock it, then pocket it, the profit, the weak of the wrong, strong, all the right needs that make way for the green, red, and black knives. Don't you want some more? Don't you want some more by Mantronics. Well, today is a, a big day for me personally, and it's uh, kind of a big day for our show as well. Uh, it is my anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Pour a cheerful toast and fill it, happy anniversary. But be careful, you don't spill it, happy anniversary. Oh. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. To be clear, it's actually, it's my wife and I, it's our wedding anniversary today. We are now married three years, and uh, boy, she deserves a medal or something after being married to me for three years. So uh, we're, I think, uh, planning to go out for dinner today, and we're going to have a babysitter that we've been experimenting with come down and uh, watch young Carmine. And uh, it's it's funny. My wife said to me as we were planning our night out tonight. Not, not that it's much of a night out. We're gonna go for we're gonna go for dinner and then you know come to work. But she said, "Do you have cash to pay the babysitter tomorrow?" And I said, "Well, I, I think so." I I said it depends on when certain checks clear and when other checks are debited, because that could certainly bring an unceremonious end at a premature end to our third anniversary if uh, we don't have the $60 necessary to pay our babysitters. Because she says to me, I have no cash. I said, uh, I'm kind of strapped till Friday either. She's, she's supposed to watch the baby on Friday as well because we, we have theater tickets with uh, a friend of ours on Friday. I said, uh, well, can we pay her for both on Friday? She said, I don't think so. So we'll see. This is going to be one of those days where I'm moving all sorts of, uh, of funds around. But... This is also the um, the eve of the anniversary of our show. Tomorrow marks the two-year anniversary of us being on the air, which we're very excited about. And um, we've grown a lot in the last two years. We've added a lot of new stations, and we're continuing to grow. Hopefully that growth continues. And I'll never forget where we come from, New York, and we're number one in New York. We've been number one in New York for 10 straight months. So what I was planning to do today is the same thing that we did last year, which is not do anything too crazy or too special for our show anniversary. Because tomorrow, tomorrow we have Roger Stone booked. Uh, initially, we were going to talk to him about his the, the January 6th committee. They have this information that they're threatening to drop on him. But as I understand it, that hearing has been postponed due to the hurricane. We'll talk more about that later. But we have Roger, we have the AC report. Michael Franzese is going to actually join me on the radio. Those of you that listened to my recent podcast interview with him know uh, what a big deal that is. So we're going to get into that. And Brian Kilmeade was going to talk about, about that. So what we did last year is we had the same three guests that we had on our first show. Now, who were those three guests? John Gambling, legendary radio commentator. So I invited John on today. He's in Europe. He's on vacation. He's not back until Friday. So we'll have him on one day next week instead. Nick Pope, who formerly worked with the British Ministry of Defense, where he was largely in charge of their UFO division, for lack of a better description. He is going to join us today. He's going to join us next hour. 
And uh, we're going to be joined as well in our fourth hour by Jeff Graham. Jeff Graham's a fascinating guy, a friend of mine for a long time. And he is the former mayor of Watertown, New York, also a bar and tavern owner up there in Watertown. So he's going to join us, talk to us about inflation and what it's like for a small business owner these days. See, when the show first started, we would check in with a bartender just about every day in the in the final hour of the show. But then it became a little difficult to do because a lot of the bars were still closed at that point. And then we kind of got in the habit of doing other things. So um, now we just check in with bartenders and bar owners sporadically. But Jeff is a window into our past when we were still doing those regular, regular segments. couple of things here. One, I am... You know, I'm not a big soda drinker, but I am very active in the movement to bring back Tab. Tab was one of my favorite sodas, and I don't really drink soda that much, but when I would, I would really enjoy a nice, refreshing, cold Tab. There's still nothing like it. I think I still have three or four cans of Tab that I'm saving for a special occasion. And uh, one of our great listeners, Sophia, sent me some beautiful Tab glasses that I drink that Tab in on those special occasions. By the way, we're still trying to get Sophia a, a kidney. If you want to give us one of your kidneys to give to Sophia, you, please contact me via email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. As I said before, as far as I'm concerned, if you give your kidney up while you're still alive, that's a ticket to heaven. You could sin as much as you want. You can, you know... Curse like a fish, you know, commit commit adultery, uh, take the Lord's name in vain, not honor your mother and father. You could break all the Ten Commandments. I think if you save someone's life by giving them a kidney while you're still alive, I'm of the belief you're going to heaven no matter which of the Ten Commandments. Maybe not if you kill somebody or rape someone. I'm not going to go that far. But anything else, I think you're, you're, gonna, you're on pretty good ground. So, anyway. I'm in all of these save tab groups on Facebook, and it's very interesting. One of the people in one of the groups that I'm in posted an email that she sent to the Coca-Cola company, which owned tab and which made the decision two years ago to scrap it. And she posts a screenshot of the kind of the form that you can fill out on their website. And she writes, here's what I just wrote to Coke. For the first time, one of the drink options, because you can choose the category of what you want to write to them about. She writes, for the first time, one of the drink options was tab. Maybe Coke is listening to their consumers. So basically what Coca-Cola has done on their website, when you write to them, they now, when it asks you, what do you want to write to them about? They include an option of tab. So I don't know if this means that they're getting so much correspondence about bringing back tab that they're thinking about it, but clearly they've added it as an option. That's a change. That's a movement in the right direction. So uh, that's very interesting. Hey, we'll talk about a few issues related to the criminal justice system in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far, 800 848 9222. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. taste. You know, raw kale can be tough. It can be tough. It's very healthy. In fact, I think, much like Mighty Mouse being a superhero, it is actually a super food, believe it or not. So kale is great for you. It's one of the best things that you can eat. You know what we do sometimes is we eat uh, kale chips, which are very easy to make. And uh, if you need the crunch from a little bit of a snack... It's got that crunch to it, but it's much healthier than, say, something like uh, corn chips or potato chips or something along those lines. So we like kale. You know who does not seem to like kale? Fetuses, unborn babies. A fascinating new study from the United Kingdom. Fetuses in the womb scowled after their mothers ate kale but smiled. After they ate carrots. Very interesting. New study of around 100 pregnant women and their fetuses in England. It offers a rare look at how fetuses respond to flavors in real time. The researchers gave the participating women capsules containing powdered version of the two foods, kale and carrots. 35 women consumed the equivalent of one medium carrot. And 34 women consumed the equivalent of 100 grams of chopped kale. The remaining 30 women didn't consume either. 20 minutes later, ultrasound scans showed that most of the fetuses exposed to the kale flavor seemed to grimace. This is the unborn baby we're talking about here. The unborn baby grimaced when the mother would eat kale. Those that were exposed to the carrot... We're laughing. The control group, meanwhile, didn't have the same responses. So it's not as if fetuses grimace sometimes and they laugh at other times. The control group was not grimacing. They were not laughing, at least not at the same times that the kale group and the carrot group was. So I thought this was uh, very interesting. And previous research has shown that the amniotic fluid surrounding a fetus can actually have different smells or flavors depending on a pregnant person's diet. Previous research, has, um, you know, a 2001 study, for instance, found that infants who were exposed to the flavor of carrots through amniotic fluid or breast milk showed fewer negative facial expressions in reaction to carrot-flavored cereal than infants who hadn't been exposed to that. And uh, evidently, they this research, along with previous research, suggests that the foods that pregnant women eat, it does affect the foods that their children will enjoy eating later on. So um, the research overwhelmingly shows 
that if you are concerned about wanting your child to have a balanced diet, the best thing that you can do while you're pregnant is to have a balanced diet yourself. And uh, I thought that was so interesting. 800-848-9222. The Today Show was talking about uh, this study a couple of days ago. I asked uh, I asked uh, Alex Barnard, our producer, who from the Today Show was talking about it. According to him, it was Al Roker and all the rest. So here is Al Roker, th- that authority on pregnant women and the foods that fetuses enjoy eating. Here is Al Roker and all of the rest. Some amazing baby faces. Look at this. So researchers in Brent, Britain wanted to know if babies in the womb react when the mom ingests a flavor of food. And this is what they saw. Do you want to guess what was on the left? Oh. So the left is a baby in its resting state. Okay. And then on the right, you see how he smiles 20 yeah. minutes? The mom ate some carrots. Oh. On the left were they? There was just a resting state. That was the resting, but, but he liked were, the carrots. She had like a carrot oh, pill. So were there other foods? Yes, there were other foods. I'm glad you asked. You want to look at this baby's sure. reaction before? It? Mom, had, <laughs> mom had kale. Wow, wow. So here's the thing. The what about if mom had had ice cream? I don't know. Why, why would they go Why would they go with, Let me with explain. carrots and vegetables? So the SETI's co-author says the images could just show muscle movements when a baby's reacting to maybe a flavor that's bitter. So you shouldn't interpret it whether, you know, it's happy or distaste. No, I think that's how I do it. Yeah. Because once they get out of the womb, it's that same look. Yeah, yeah. it's the same way. That's not funny, though. But it just goes to show, you know, what you ingest. Yeah. yeah. You are what you, know, you eat. Good. Bea Ustin, the lead author of this UK study. Now, again, I want to emphasize this is only 100 women we're talking about and 100 babies. So it, it, you really, I think, to draw broad conclusions about this, we really need a broader study group. That being said, Bea Ustin, the lead author of this study, she said that what this indicates is that um, – Exposure to kale, which remember how trendy kale was for a while? It was very trendy. Exposure to kale and other vegetables in the womb, it likely makes for a less picky child. Quote, what we know from other research is actually that if the mother has a varied diet like vegetables and fruits, etc., babies are much less fussy eaters. That's interesting. You know, one of the things, if you want to comment on this, I'm curious, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm curious if you've observed this anecdotally. If you, for instance, hate um, mushrooms and stayed away from eating mushrooms, or did you find that your child had those same tastes when he was uh, born? and or, or vice versa, anything like that. Did your eating habits... Translate to him. 800-848-9222. It's interesting. One of the things that my wife and I were both concerned about for our son was food allergies. When I was a kid, there was nothing more American, nothing more wholesome, nothing more delicious, quite frankly, and nothing more ubiquitous than our school than a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, If you walk into a school with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, they will call the police and have you arrested. You have a better shot of walking into a public school with a gun than you do a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I don't blame the schools here because there's a lot of children 
that um, have very serious peanut allergies. They can end up hospitalized. And so I don't blame the schools for not wanting these children hospitalized with deadly peanut allergies. But I've been fascinated that by this trend that when I was a child, everyone ate peanut butter and jelly. Everyone brought candy bars with peanut butter and jelly. They would serve peanuts at snacks. Uh, that was not peanut butter and jelly in the candy bar, but peanuts in the candy bar. They would serve peanuts as snacks. Peanuts were everywhere. And slowly but surely, we've seen this number of people with peanut allergies and other food allergies go up. And there's a lot of theories as to why that's the case. But one of the things that I saw is that expectant mothers who consumed peanuts were less likely to have children with peanut allergies. And young people, children, who got exposure to a wide variety of different foods, they were less likely to have those food allergies. So uh, what we did is we tried to make sure Rachel would eat peanuts while she was pregnant, number one, and while she was breastfeeding. But number two, we also, we've been, and we still do this a bit, we um, we give him this powder in his food, in his baby food. It's not baby food. I mean, it's basically just mushed food. But we give him this powder, which contains, I don't have the name in front of me, but I'll, I'll tell you if you're interested, I'll look it up. But this powder contains all sorts of common allergens, all the common allergens that children are allergic to, including peanuts, including shellfish, including all sorts of things. It microdoses them and you put it in their food. And the theory is that one, if they are allergic to it, you'll see a reaction. But the more likely scenario, at least the theory is that having these spoonfuls of common allergens makes it less likely that they're going to develop these food allergies. But I never thought, so we had allergies on our mind, but we never thought that we should be making sure that Rachel's eating kale so that the baby likes to eat kale. We never thought of that. And I'm curious if this will change your behavior if you're an expectant mother, I know we have a lot of expectant mothers that end up listening to the show because they have a difficult time sleeping around this time of the night. That uh, that product is called Spoonful One. Spoonful One. It's uh, all sorts of uh, common allergens that they that you mix into baby food, and uh, um, and it's going really well so far. So far, no reaction, and hopefully, he doesn't develop any food allergies. He's been trying all sorts of different foods. And he hasn't had any negative reactions whatsoever. 800-848-9222. I'm curious if you have anecdotally observed one way or another what this study seems to suggest, which is that the diet of an expectant mother essentially leads to the food preferences of their baby once the baby is born. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to comment. Let me begin with Pamela. In New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Oh, hi. Um, this is a great topic because I have a strange story. My mother was extremely pregnant, uh, uh, nauseous throughout my pregnancy. Um, and the only thing she could get down was Texas wieners, strangely enough. What are, what are Texas then, wieners? Is that like a Frankfurter? Oh, well, yeah, a hot dog with like uh, like a tomato sauce, like a chili and onions. Okay, you know, got, it, um, got it. it. It's usually that. And to this 
day, if I have like a flu or something, I can't eat anything else. But boy, I can eat a hot dog with everything on it. You're kidding me. So that worked in, in well, I mean, the, the results of this stu- study certainly held true in your case. Absolutely. And we always joke about it in my family. In fact, they wanted to give my mother thalidomide, which we all know what oh, happened yeah. with that. Oh, yeah. Thank goodness they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and she said, no, I'll I'll work it out somehow. And she was so sick. She couldn't eat anything except for a hot dog. And to this day, like, I'll want, like, the most bizarre food when I'm really sick with the flu, which you usually can't eat anything. But a hot dog will do it for me. Well, that's great, Pamela. Well, I don't know if it's great, but it is uh, it is what it is. It's interesting That's uh, that it seems to support the results of this study. Thank you. If we have any more children, I'm going to make sure that we are, take pains to make sure that Rachel is eating a varied diet that uh, including maybe foods that she doesn't necessarily want to eat so that the baby enjoys those foods. You know, one of the things that uh, Rachel's got a pretty balanced diet and a pretty healthy diet, but she does not like mushrooms and she does not like peas. So obviously while she was pregnant and I love mushrooms, I could eat mushrooms with every meal, right? Um, While she was pregnant, she didn't eat either of those things because she doesn't eat them. So I'm wondering if Carmine will have any sort of reluctance to eat mushrooms or, or or peas. I'm trying to think if we've given him mushrooms yet. We tried to give him peas on um, uh, two days ago, and I think he ate them. He, he seemed to like them okay. But I don't know that we've given him mushrooms yet. Now that I'm thinking about this out loud, we're going to have to try and uh, and see what we can do. That spoonful one product that I've, I've I mentioned to you that we give Carmine, it has a little bit of the microdose almond, cashew, cod, egg, hazelnut, milk, oat, peanut, wheat, walnut, soy, shrimp, sesame, salmon, pistachio, and pecan, because those are 11 common allergies, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, four, 16 common allergies that children develop food allergies to. So the theory is that if you expose them to the spoonful one, that maybe that will mean that they you know, don't develop those allergies. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bob is in Bergen County. Hello, Bob. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for asking. Good. Um I was watching this show uh, that had Tim Allen on it. I think it was his show. And uh, his friend was telling him that they can't uh, bring peanut butter or peanuts into the school, like you were saying. And Tim Allen says, it's comforting to know that our enemies can wipe us out with a jar of Skippy. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I haven't heard that bit, but that's pretty funny. Yeah, he's a pretty funny guy. Yeah, I was paraphrasing, but that's basically what he, what he said. Sure, absolutely. That's good stuff. Thanks, Bob. 800-848-9222. AC is in New Jersey. This is not the city, AC, is it? AC? AC? Maybe Hello. Is. Hello, Hello, AC? I can't hear you. Well, Hello. that's my loss, I guess, AC. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know who I think that was actually. I didn't want to embarrass him, and I always like to ask, as I did with um, with John from CBS too. I think that was actually Al Cowlings, who was O.J. Simpson's driver with uh, during that Broncos chase. So Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. 
gee, with all the stuff he's giving the kid, Frank, uh, he's going to grow up to be like a Dolph Lundgren. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Listen, I, I want to talk about the kidney. Uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned before that my friend has gotten a kidney uh, from her husband, and she was on the anti-rejection drugs. And after about five years, you know, the drugs just ruined the kidney. So she had to get another kidney. Wait, but wait a minute. Wait, a... I actually, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. So the the anti-rejection drugs ruined the new kidney. Ruined the kidney, yeah. It, but um... I thought that that anti-rejection. And I, look, I don't pretend to be an expert in any of this, but I thought the anti-rejection drugs were supposed to do the exact opposite of that. Yeah, but the kidney doesn't last forever. There's a, there's a, it's supposed a, to last a... more than five years, though. Well, it, but how long lasted five years? Jeez. You know, and then uh, she had to get another kidney, but then they came out with this program. Now, anyone who donates a kidney, it goes into a bank, and the person that they donated it for, they go to the head of the list, and they actually find the kidney for them that's a fit. Right. You don't need the drugs, right. which right. is what happened to her. The sister-in-law donated a kidney. She went to the head of the list. They found the kidney for her. Uh, unfortunately, she was on the operating table, and they looked at it. They gave it a wrong kidney. It's supposed to be a right kidney. They gave her a left kidney. You so they had to go through it again. But they did find the kidney. She got the kidney, and, and she, she's doing great without the drugs. So, you know, anyone could donate, and the person they're going to donate it for is going to get a proper kidney, which is great. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So uh, uh, I, I am a um, – I, I don't have the, the – the uh, I'm not prepared to give a kidney away right now. Uh, my thinking is if my son needs one or something along those lines, I'd like to be in a position to give him one. But I uh, I'm prepared. I'm going to give all my organs away uh, when I when I pass on. Neil, thanks for the call. But if you are willing to be a living kidney donor, in my book, you're top notch. That puts you on a whole nother level, right? Uh, I have a friend. I've talked about her before. She's a living kidney donor, and she can be a little annoying at times, I must say. But I always think to myself, all right, okay. But she still gave her kidney away. I Let, let me put up with her being annoying. So that's that. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. You know who's going to join us next? Nick Pope. Nick Pope is a fascinating guy. He worked with the British Ministry of Defense, and now he's a journalist He's sort of one of the go-to UAP slash UFO experts in the country, but he's not, I don't want to say he's not crazy, he doesn't go too far. He only says what what he can say that can be backed up with facts, right? So I I don't know, um, I don't know what that means and what that portends. For the future of the UFO disclosure movement, not only in this country, but worldwide. But I'm eager to talk to him about uh, this asteroid situation, because a lot of people are fearful that if there are hostile aliens, that maybe, you know, we might need to do the same kind of thing that we did with this asteroid. I'm also eager to talk with him because he is British. Prince Philip, who was Queen Elizabeth's husband, who died a couple of years ago, he was really interested in this subject. So I'm curious what he knows about Prince Philip's interest in this and what this might portend for the future of the royal family and the U.K.'s interest in UAPs. We'll touch base on a whole bunch of other things as well. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. People to talk to is Nick Pope. Uh, he is something of a UAP slash UFO expert, one of the most sought after commenters on this subject, not in the whole country, but probably in the whole world. He is a journalist and a former employee of the British Ministry of Defense. Kind enough to join us on our very first show two years ago, and he's joined us from time to time since then. And uh, he is uh, kind enough to join us right now. Nick, thanks, as always, for staying up late with us. It's great to talk with you again. It's great to be back, Frank. Thanks for having me. Remind me of, um, well, not remind me because I'm familiar with it, but remind the listeners who may not have heard our previous conversations, what exactly did you do with the British Ministry of Defense? Well, I was a civilian employee there. I worked for 21 years in the department, had uh, seven or eight different jobs. But for much of the early 90s, I had a, a posting where I was basically responsible for the UFO, UAP issue, handling the policy advice for ministers and, and senior personnel, um, doing the investigations, handling the, the media inquiries and, and everything. So yeah, th- that's how I got into it. No previous interest or, or belief, just a government posting. Well, that's pretty neat. And um, the, by the way, the terminology shift is something that a lot of folks have taken note of from UFO to UAP. It, was that done because the term UFO had become so stigmatized over the years? Yes, absolutely. And we pioneered this. We didn't invent the term, but we resurrected it in the early 90s in the Ministry of Defense. And uh, the U.S. government clearly took notice. And, and uh, one, one of the DOD, or actually it was Navy spokespeople, said, yeah, we borrowed the term from the Brits. And absolutely, we, we, the term had so much pop culture baggage that uh, there was stigma pilots were reluctant to come forward with their sightings and they were the very people we needed to come forward pilots and radar operators so we deliberately shifted from ufo to uap and and it did help and it's still helping <laughs> 
I, well, I, I'm glad to hear that because uh, it's a shame for anybody to see something and be afraid to say something because they're afraid they're going to be laughed at or canceled or labeled a drunk or a conspiracy theorist or anything, uh, anything like that. You are featured regularly on the program Ancient Aliens, and uh, this is one of the most popular shows on all of cable television. In fact, it gets numbers that are so big, sometimes it beats what's on broadcast networks. And not long ago, uh, they did a segment talking about Prince Philip's interest in the subject of UAPs. This is from Ancient Aliens. April 9th, 2021. Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, passes away at the age of 99. As publications across the world report on his incredible life, it comes to light that the prince had a long-held fascination with the UFO phenomenon. When Prince Philip died in the spring of 2021, there was a bit of a surprise to the British public, and that was that Prince Philip had a huge collection of books on UFOs that went right back to the mid-1940s. And here you have the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, researching and investigating UFOs. Had the news got out, it would have caused a sensation. I certainly recognize that last voice there, Nick. Why was it a surprise for people that this was such an interest of Prince Philip? It was a surprise because uh, the, the sensitivities were so extreme that this simply was not advertised or talked about in, in the media. A few people knew about it. I mean, I, I knew about it, of course. But uh, the, the irony was, you see, that, that British government policy was to play down the subject of UFOs, yet we were all technically, of course, in a constitutional monarchy, crown servants, and our own bosses were fascinated by this. So we were in a sort of catch-22 situation with, with this. But, uh, you know, while, while um, Prince Philip was still alive, it re- really wasn't something that could be discussed. But uh, after he died, and now, of course, with Queen Elizabeth II having died very recently, a lot of people are saying, well, what about all all the investigation. Are there files and things? Yes, there are, but they're probably buried in the royal archives, which, and, and there are special rules about that. So I don't think anyone's going to be seeing anything uh, anytime soon. Did you ever have occasion to speak with Prince Philip on the subject? I didn't, uh, but I knew, I knew a number of other people like former chief of the defense staff, uh, Admiral Lord Hill Norton, who who obviously moved in those circles. But no, I, I never met uh, the Duke of Edinburgh nor, nor discussed this with him. But I, I was, as I say, I was aware of his interest. I was aware uh, that he secretly uh, subscribed to a number of UFO magazines which were discreetly sent to the palace. Uh, and, and indeed, through his royal equerry, uh, he even interviewed one or two UFO witnesses over the years. Do we know what sparked uh, Prince Philip's interest in this subject? Yes, we do. It was his uncle, Earl Mountbatten, uh, who who really interested him in this. And the fascinating thing about Earl Mountbatten 
is that whether one believes this story or not, but one of the people that worked on his his estate said that in in the mid fifties there had been actual UFO landing uh, there. The, the the Earl Mountbatten was not there at the time, didn't see it, but he called in this this worker, interviewed him, found him to be credible, and and that's what sparked his interest, and and then obviously. Uh, it, it's something that he passed on to Prince Philip. You mentioned these sort of royal X-Files uh, that he might have uh, commissioned or at least had access to on the subject of space and alien life. You indicated that uh, this sort of a report or investigations probably buried somewhere. What would need to happen for this Prince Philip commissioned investigation or report, these royal X-Files, to be made public? Well, the the Royal Archives, uh, I mean, that that is a thing, I mean, on on a wide range of subjects, of course, but just as with the Freedom of Information Act, where there are all sorts of exemptions, uh, the exemptions when it comes to royal correspondence, particularly anything that might still be deemed sensitive or embarrassing, um, very, very strict. So I think a couple of people have asked and have been told that... uh, no such papers have been located. It wouldn't surprise me if they were put, I suppose, beyond the reach of, of the Freedom of Information Act altogether by, by perhaps putting them out to a third party uh, in, in private hands. I mean, this, as I say, this was all almost literally above top secret. Do we know anything about, uh, people just tuning in, we're talking with Nick Pope, one of the finest uh, journalists on the subject of UFOs uh, anywhere, and somebody that also worked with the British Ministry of Defense, manning their UFO desk for a number of years. Do we know anything about King Charles and his interest in the subject of UFOs? Do his interests mirror his father's, or did he sort of take a different path as far as you're aware? It's not really known. Uh, he, he certainly has a number of interests that he's, he's passionate about. Um, architecture is one of them. The environment is another. Uh, different, different faiths and religions interest uh, King Charles III. But uh, if, this is, if UAP is one of his interests, he's kept it very quiet. There is a a, US, a federal U.S. government agency, and they created quite a kerfuffle recently. The U.S. National Intelligence Manager for Aviation, they unveiled a new logo. And the logo, as you might expect, of a federal agency that deals with aviation, it has an airplane on it, it has what looks like a, a fighter jet on it, maybe even a drone. And then... It has this new logo has a flying saucer on it. Now, why would a U.S. government agency reveal a government sanctioned logo with a flying saucer? What's been the response uh, from this agency? What are some of the theories as to why this logo with the flying saucer on it was revealed? Well, this is an absolutely fascinating one, Frank, and, and the, there's been a new twist in the story just literally a few hours ago. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen this, but they have now walked this back somewhat, and the Department of Defense 
uh, I think late last night or early this morning, um, released a, a statement basically saying NIM Aviation erroneously posted an unofficial and incorrect logo. Well, you know, that's all very well, but come on. I mean, so few people, I think, have the, the authority and the access codes to, to post on the front page of a government website, particularly one handling uh, sensitive classified intelligence matters. So that's, uh, you know, it's something. I don't know what's going on here. Sometimes, I, I think with something like this, it's, it's something that somebody wanted to be found. They didn't, they didn't sort of slip this out there, and it's not hidden. They wanted it to be seen. So they dangled it in front of people, and then when it got noticed and when they probably sure that everyone had got their screenshots, then it gets walked back. And it's not like this is the first time something like this has happened. Something like this, uh, I, I think we may even have discussed it a while ago, some ATIP. Um, documents, the, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, the DIA put some of those documents in their electronic reading room and they put them in the category UAP. DOD came on down on them like a ton of bricks and mm. said, no, no, it put them in a different section because they, of course, were taking the line, it's not a UAP program. So this sort of thing happens. I, it, could, it could mean there are different factions at work jockeying for for narrative control or it could be indicative of some sort of psychological operation but it's absolutely fascinating i mean i could see a scenario in which someone on the graphic design team with this federal agency was trying to um play some sort of a prank on their on their superiors and the public but i could also see a scenario in which there were elements of the government that wanted this to be out there to sort of uh, like that ATIP scenario that you mentioned a second ago to further the discussion of the UAP issue. I mean, do you have a theory as to as to why this might have come out there, a, a logo with a flying saucer on it? Yeah, I, I mean, it didn't come from nowhere. And mm. even if you take the DOD walk back at face value. They're, I mean, they're not exactly saying a practical joke got out of hand, but they're, it's reading between the lines. Right. That's almost the way it, it sounds. But ask yourself how credible that is. I mean, that, that somebody is going to risk their, their promotion prospects, maybe even their career by putting, I mean, this isn't just some obscure oh, yeah. detail. This is, this is a new organization set up within the office of the director of national intelligence who of course last summer put out the preliminary assessment on on uap that went to congress and and the media and the public of course so i mean this is this is not something to be taken lightly no certainly not talking with uh, with nick pope nick by the way how often are you confused with the english soccer player nick pope quite a lot Actually, quite a lot, and uh, yeah, he we occasionally get each other's um, not not so much emails, but social media posts. He he, I think from time to time gets asked about Roswell. I occasionally <laughs> get get tips on which way to dive if I'm facing a penalty kick or something. <laughs> Have you become a fan of his because of the name similarity at all? Oh, absolutely. We've exchanged a few. We've exchanged a few. Um, 
you know, messages and things. And one of the funny things is that, um, you know, without wanting to fuel the rumors that I'm still secretly working for the Ministry of Defense, but I am still in the Ministry of Defense, uh, one of their longest standing fantasy football teams, Ah, football football being soccer. soccer, And of course, Nick Pope was my number one pick. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally, naturally. Uh, Obviously, the big news this week uh, as it relates to space is NASA, DART, and the asteroid. The attempt by NASA to use a spaceship to alter the trajectory of an asteroid. What what are your key takeaways as uh, somebody that's worked for a somewhat similar government agency about how this whole thing went? Is the threat of a, uh, a an asteroid collision with the Earth something that you're generally worried about and is this sort of a a good step in making sure that we're not we don't end up like the dinosaurs? It's a great step. I mean somebody once said it would be the ultimate irony if the first generation with the technology to do something about this um, gets gets hit on its watch by by a, a killer comet or asteroid that that would pose an existential threat to life on earth and and the mission was a great success i mean it was absolute bullseye i mean this 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 little asteroid dimorphous is, is only about one hundred and sixty meters across and it's seven million miles away and they 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 absolutely got it dead center so I, and you probably saw the footage from the NASA mm-hmm. control room mm-hmm. of all the scientists cheering and things so it's 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 great and we absolutely do need a contingency plan uh, we need better um, a watch kept on our solar system for these sorts of things coming in in the first place it's it's you know so there's two halves of this you need the the telescopes watching out for for anything on a collision course and then you need to be able to do something about it if you find it and then what happened this week is addressing that so it's great news this may seem like a silly question to some but there are a lot of people that are concerned especially after seeing a lot of science fiction films like Independence Day where aliens try to uh, take over the the earth and destroy a bunch of the humans that are on it. There's a lot of concerns in some quarters about hostile extraterrestrials making their way to this planet sometime or sending something that would harm uh, this planet at uh, the same time. Could, in theory, the same technology that's been used to make sure an asteroid doesn't destroy the Earth be used to make sure that uh, an alien ship or an alien weapon doesn't destroy the Earth? I mean, I guess it could. You know, you could say that all of this is dual use. Uh, I mean, and we can talk about this as being a wider part of U.S. government uh, policy in space, which is increasingly through through things like Space Command, of course, uh, recognizing that, that of, you know, the, the traditional warfighting domains, people talk about land, sea, and air. Well, now it's all space and cyberspace as, as being the, the two key warfighting domains. So, so, yeah, I mean, anything that's set up to deal with, with kind of asteroids mm. or comets or, or Russians or, or Chinese or whatever, um, 
could, in theory, absolutely be adapted. I mean, I'm a little skeptical that if we were facing some sort of alien invasion war fleet from a civilization a million years ahead of us, that that firing a, a NASA probe, you know, is going to defeat the whole thing. But but why not? Right, it's exactly. a start. Exactly. <laughs> uh, speaking of um, space as the future of war, the Aerospace Corporation, which is a national nonprofit, they built a federally funded 90,000 square foot facility in Colorado to examine space warfighting and advanced system concepts and educate space operators and analysts on assessing a variety of threat scenarios. It, it seems like um, it, it's looking pretty prudent on the part of the Trump administration to launch Space Force to begin with. I know other countries have a version of Space Force as well. It really does look like space could be the next place where wars take place, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think President Trump was right to recognize that and, and put a lot of money and resources and, and brain power into it from, from our, our scientists and our military uh, leaders. Uh, absolutely, yeah. It, it's going to be key. And, you know, no one wants to sort of sound like a warmonger, but, but the whole point is to prevent a war by, by dominating sure. the battle space. So it's, it's as much about deterrence, I think, as anything else. But the United States needs to be and is strong in space, but you, you know it is going to be absolutely pivotal. So I think uh, the U.S. should put as much resources as possible into into space and cyberspace. I mean, information warfare and and um, cyber warfare is is going to be critically important as well. But this new space center is in, interesting and important. And you know, bizarrely enough, there is, of course, as there always is, a, a UFO twist to this. Because one of the people on the board of the Aerospace Corporation is David Norquist, who actually, when he was at DOD, set up the UAP task force. Mm. So it all, you know, it all comes together. Indeed, it does. I am curious, Nick, and I'm sure this is a question you get both in the media and maybe even in your personal life on a daily basis. And I'm sorry to be the thousandth person to ask it. You ended up seeing a lot of information at a very high level that most of us have never seen the kind of intelligence reports of all sorts of different sightings. And I, I'm curious in your your time with the British government and your time since leaving the British government where you've been called upon to analyze this sighting, that sighting, this story, that story. With all the information that you've been exposed to over the last 30 years, have you ended up being a believer that there have been extraterrestrial visits to this planet? Have you ended up being a believer that there haven't been? Or do you consider yourself sort of a, a jury still out kind of a guy? Definitely the latter. It's, it's you know, I'm not one of these people that's going to tell you, oh, this is a done deal. It's proven because clearly it's not. You know, I, I know a lot of people say, oh, there, there's a smoking gun hidden somewhere in the, the basement office of the Pentagon. But uh, if, if there is, they didn't show it to me. So I, I think, yeah, I, I'm open-minded about the possibilities. I've made no secret of the fact that, that I agree with the ODNI assessment last summer, that, or preliminary assessment, that there is probably no single neat 
solution to the UFO mystery. Chances are a lot of different things going on in parallel, but I've not hidden the fact that I'd love it to be aliens. It would be the most interesting and uh, impactful and historically significant solution to the UFO mystery. So that's I mean, that's what I hope it turns out to be, or some of it. I, I mentioned the popularity of shows like Ancient Aliens, which you're regular, regularly featured on. What do you attribute the explosion of popular interest, not just on television, because obviously you can explain the interest in that show away because of your participation in it, but um, films, uh, television, radio, podcasts, uh, mainstream news publications like the New York Times and 60 Minutes. There has been a surge of interest in the UAP issue over the last six years, so much so that Congress has been forced to hold hearings on it. The DNI, as you indicated, has been forced to issue reports on it. What is behind the explosion of interest in this subject in recent years? Well, I think it's several things. I mean, at, at the basic level, this is events-led, and it's, it's only happened because we've had these, these spectacular uh, incidents involving pilots and radar operators, and, and you know, this has been detected across multiple platforms, in, including the, the radar, but also the forward-looking infrared, um, former DNI John, John Ratcliffe, uh, dropped a little bombshell when mm. he talked about these things being picked up on on satellites, for example. So so it's events led, but also there's there's been a kind of wake up moment, I think. And you mentioned Congress, and absolutely, Congress is fully engaged on this now. And they, I think, they feel a little bit caught out that that they feel a little foolish that this was all dismissed as nonsense, and now they find out that it's not. So they're playing catch up. And in the next, I mean, the draft language in the next round of legislation, the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, which is going to be probably incorporated into the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023, contains the strongest range of UAP measures that I have ever seen. Talking about a proper joined up effort into this, whistleblower protection for, for people who've been involved in programs who want to come forward and uh, testify to Congress. We're going to almost certainly, you mentioned the public hearings that we've had. We're going to have more of those, I'm sure. There's another report, I think, due to Congress end of um, October. It's it's all going on. And the GAO is going to do a, an investigation, by the way, going back, or, or this is in the legislation, the draft language, if it passes, GAO is going to go back to 1947, so Roswell, and, and look at all that again. Well, it's certainly a pretty exciting time to be studying this stuff and commenting on it. Uh, Nick Pope, if people are interested in your work, they can check you out at nickpope.net. We've been talking with Nick Pope. He investigated UAP for the British government, and now he is one of the world's leading experts on UFOs, the unexplained, and conspiracy theories. Nick, it is always a real treat to talk with you. Please give my best to your wife as well. It's been way too long since we had her on the show, too. Will do. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment... On any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The 
Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Simply nobody like Ella Fitzgerald singing about flying saucers, two little men in a flying saucer. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to comment on anything we're talking about, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You can also find us on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Interesting thing happened a little earlier. As you know, I have stated very clearly that I adhere to the philosophy, not only in this workplace, but every workplace where there's a communal refrigerator, but especially here where we have a grocery company that is headquartered two floors above us. I have always said that if you put something in the kitchen that is not labeled with your name on it, either in the refrigerator or in the common area of the kitchen, it is assumed that that is up for grabs. And I nobody has disputed that. Nobody. Everything's fair game. Everything, as you heard Rita say there, is fair game unless it does. It has your name on. If you want nobody to take your stuff, throw your name on there or your initials or a do not touch any anything like that. And you know it goes both ways. It's like the give a penny, take a penny, right? I bring stuff from home all the time, and I put it out there for people to take. And you know what they do, right? And that's what it's intended for. However. I did, about 45 minutes ago, something that I did maybe about three or four weeks ago. Uh, You know, I was pretty hungry. I had dinner with my wife, but it was real like lunch for me, you know, maybe about five hours ago. I was a little hungry, and I didn't see anything kind of healthy to snack on. Everything was just junk food. I didn't want the junk food. So I see in the refrigerator, while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew, I see there is a a drink of premier protein, uh, a premier protein pumpkin spice drink, which is basically it's a protein shake, right? And I've had this before. Somebody's brought it in before without their name on it, and I drank it before, and it was good. I said, you know what? This would hit the spot right about now. No, only 160 calories. It's not going to you know, sit in my stomach when I go to bed after work. Gives me a little bit of the energy boost that I need. It has immune health support. Pretty flavorful. I said, I'm going to have this. So while my coffee's brewing, I start drinking this. And then, of all people, Kenneth comes in. I'm thinking as Kenneth comes in, is this Kenneth's? Because it's going to be very awkward for me if he comes in and he sees me drinking his Premier Protein Limited Edition Pumpkin Spice drink. But... uh, I don't think it was Kenneth because then we ended up having a conversation about how I take my coffee. 
And I didn't feel like getting into, we only had three minutes, right? So I didn't feel like getting into a whole lecture about how if this was his and he didn't want me to drink it, he should throw a label on it. So whoever's premier protein drink this was that I just drank, I'm not sorry. Because if you don't want to drink, throw a label on it. <laughs> Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. issues I want to bring to your attention with respect to the criminal justice system. We'll take your calls on anything you feel like commenting on. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In the stack of stories that is ignored by everybody but me. Do you ever notice how long that stack is? I mean, there's just this massive stack of news stories that nobody pays attention to except me. I watch, you know, and listen to all the channels, read all the papers. They cover the same 25 stories that everybody else does. And yet, there are so many important stories that get ignored. This is one. A bipartisan Senate report was released last week that found, that found what? See, you don't know because you didn't hear about this because this story was reported nowhere. A bipartisan Senate report was released last week that found that the Justice Department is failing miserably. There's a shock. You don't even need to know what the rest of that sentence is, do you? Right. It it, it surprises no one that the Justice Department is failing miserably. Right. That's the thing that's bringing that brings the whole country together. If you're a left winger, a right winger, a no winger, you say, oh, the Justice Department's failing miserably. Okay, Shoulder shrug. I'm not surprised. What are they failing miserably at? Oh, everything. All right. Well, the Justice Department is failing miserably at collecting data on people who die in prisons and jails with at least, listen to me, at least 990 uncounted deaths in fiscal year 2021. Can we talk about that? That we can't even keep track? of who's dying in prison and jail, and that there were almost a 1,000, at least, uncounted deaths in fiscal year 2021. The Justice Department says the federal law, the Death in Custody Reporting Act, doesn't give federal officials enough power to force state and local corrections officials to report the data. Now, that may be true. But caught in the middle of this are prisoners, many of whom die alone and afraid, and their families who are not given timely information, not given accurate information about their loved ones. And that is a damn shame. And uh, 
this needs to change pronto. We are supposed to be the most advanced nation on earth, and yet we can't even count the number of people that are dying behind bars? And it's a lot more than just being moral or wanting to comfort the families of those that lose a loved one. Okay, that's important, but the reason it's important for us, the public and the media, to have this data is because this not having the data makes it hard to identify the worst prisons and jails. Whenever somebody dies at Rikers this year, what do you hear? This is the 14th person to die at Rikers this year. That tells us that Rikers Island is a problem facility. There are some problems at Rikers Island that need to be worked out, right? First among them is probably we shouldn't have correction officers that are taking bribes from gangs to allow drugs to be smuggled in there, right? That's probably a good place to start. But whatever the solutions are, that's a pretty good indication that there's a problem. If there's 14 people dying in custody, that's a problem. And when we don't know how many people are dying in custody it becomes very difficult to know what the problem jails are and what the problem prison prisons are. So um, the Marshall Project, which covers criminal justice issues, they had an interesting piece on this um, over the weekend. And the writer of it, J- Jamil's Larty, began his article very cleverly and very humorously. And it's very difficult to be humorous about such a serious failure of a major government agency. But he manages it. I think it's a he. I don't know. Are you curious about the mating strategies of the foothill yellow-legged frog? Good news! The federal government has publications on that. But if you want to know how many people have died in U.S. jails, prisons, and detention centers in recent years... Federal data will be harder to come by. Now, the guy raises a pretty important point. You can find the mating strategies of the foothill yellow-legged frog with the click of a mouse, but not how many people died in in jail. And uh, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. And I hope after this, the release of this bipartisan support, I hope we're able to do something like this. Because as Senator John Ossoff, who's the uh, subcommittee chairman of the subcommittee that dealt with this report, this is a moral disgrace. And there are a whole lot of stories about people like Matthew Laughlin. Um, Matthew Laughlin was incarcerated in in a Savannah, Georgia jail. And the senators, during a subcommittee hearing on this subject, they heard a recording from a 2014 phone call between Matthew Laughlin and his mother. With desperation in his voice, he said that he had been coughing up blood and his feet were swollen. Quote, I need to go to the hospital. I'm going to die in here. He had cardiomyopathy. That's a heart disease which was not properly treated in jail. His mother alleged that the jail's for-profit medical provider, provider, Horizon Health and its focus on the financial bottom line contributed to her son's death. Horizon has said it puts patients care first and told jail staff to hospitalize people when needed. But a 2020 Reuters analysis of deaths in the country's largest jails found 
death rates were 18 to 58 percent higher in facilities that had privatized their health care versus those where care was provided by public agencies. So I'm interested to see where this goes. The bottom line is we can't make changes to public policy without knowing who's dying. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. Here's a question for you. If you're a murderer and you live in a state that has the death penalty, should you be put to death if you're mentally ill, seriously mentally ill. And I guess my answer would, now uh, I'm not going to get into my answer. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop what I was going to say. I think a lot of people's answer would depend on whether or not the murderer was mentally ill at the time that they committed the murder, right? So if you committed the murder and you were not seriously mentally ill, and then you develop a mental illness, a serious mental illness, after you commit that murder, then I think a lot of people that support the death penalty might have less, I don't want to say sympathy, because it's difficult to have sympathy with a real cold-blooded murderer, but less of a desire to see that person not be executed. Um, Let's take a look at what's happening in Oklahoma. And this is a graphic case, and I promise you we'll get into some more upbeat issues after this. I, I, I don't want to – I don't like to discuss this much death, but I have – I'm conflicted here in my desire to entertain and my desire to bring you issues that are difficult to talk about and difficult to think about and issues that are um, ignored by everybody else. Oklahoma, there is a person in there who's on death row, Benjamin Cole. Benjamin Cole, I mean, it was difficult for me to even read the description of how he committed his murder. I'm not going to tell you what he did because, honestly, it's so difficult for me to read what he did, and it's so difficult. I don't know that I could even talk about it. And I don't want to cause you to turn off the radio by being so disgusted. But let me just say, It was such a heinous killing of such an innocent person, is what he did. Okay. The Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board voted 4-1 to on Tuesday to deny clemency to confessed killer Benjamin Cole, despite his attorney's pleas for mercy on mental illness grounds. So Cole is 57 years old. He's set to be executed by lethal injection on October 20th for the murder that he committed. And again, the details of this murder are so horrific. I can't even, I can't even, I'm looking at it and I can't even read it. Uh, He then went back after he committed this murder to playing a Nintendo video game, 007. Uh, Dr. Brian Young, the uncle of the victim, said, I can't fathom how any human being could do what this man did. How could any human being do that? The mind boggles me. And me too. So there was a clemency hearing on 
Benjamin Cole's mental illness. And his attorneys said since his trial, he's been diagnosed as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and he has a growing brain lesion. They said he rarely talks to anyone. He believes rock bands send him messages. He does not take showers. He refuses medical treatment for a painful condition. He's currently being held at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. He's on death, uh, he's on death row. He stays, stays in his cell. He hoards food and religious materials. He keeps the lights off at all times. Six guards had to carry him on a gurney to a special cell next to the execution chamber this month because he couldn't roll his wheelchair to the elevator. At trial, he stared for hours at a Bible. He wanted to invite the guitarist from the band Korn to witness his execution originally scheduled in 2015, and he predicted he would simply vanish once strapped down to the execution table. So the guy has been examined by enough professionals. He's not faking this. I mean, this is a brain lesion. The guy is crazy. I mean, uh, this this is the kind of guy that listens to the music that Alex Barnard produces. I mean, he's a few aces short of a full deck. The last part we don't think is true, but honestly, it wouldn't surprise anybody if that was the case. Um, One attorney, Tom Hurd, said, we've known Benjamin for a long time. And we've seen him go a little further downhill. Downhill, getting worse and worse. We've seen the decline. He's not faking it. He's not some kind of mastermind. Attorneys for the state of Oklahoma, they've acknowledged this. They've acknowledged that he's frail. They've acknowledged that he has a brain lesion. And they've acknowledged that he's showing signs of serious mental illness. However, they're not willing to say that he's not faking all this. They've called him manipulative. And they said he was diagnosed before trial as only having a minor mental illness, a personality disorder. They told the board he regularly talks to the correction officers who deliver canteen items to him. So state attorneys provided the board with a report by a state forensic psychologist who evaluated Cole in July. And that psychologist reported that Cole did not exhibit substantial signs of hallucinations Uh, or serious mental illness, or intellectual impairment. The psychologist did note that Cole repeatedly asserted a belief that people need to get right with Jesus because there's little time left for humanity. He described Cole's discussion of religion as frankly largely consistent with the beliefs of millions of individuals and not the product of a statutory defined mental illness. So the psychologist said, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, my words, not his, the psychologist said he's well enough to kill. Mentally. Um, And the parole board agreed. They're allowing this execution to go forward in October. My question for you is, where do you come down on this? As far as I'm concerned, this guy is legitimately seriously mentally ill. Now, I haven't examined him as this psychologist has. This guy, there's no way this guy is not out of his gourd. Guy's nuts. Should... If you commit a horrible murder, as this person did, and the way the way he committed this murder and who he killed, this is the kind of murder that if you're against the death penalty, if you know the details of it, it makes you for the death penalty. 
So um, that being said, as horrible as this murder is, and he's admitted to it, he's confessed. As horrible as this murder is, should you be executed if you are legitimately mentally ill? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. As of now, Mr. Cole being executed next month. Uh, Last criminal justice story I want to bring to your attention before we run out of time. The state's attorney in Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, had some interesting things to say on the subject of Adnan Syed. You remember Adnan Syed? Adnan Syed is the person that got freed thanks to a podcast. And again, we're looking for some people to get out of jail on this show. If you're uh, if you're in jail or in prison and you're innocent and I can prove your innocence on the radio, I'd love to get you out of prison. Write to me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. And I'm not being glib. I mean that. We could use the publicity for this show just as the way Serial got this guy, Adnan Syed, out of prison. So the big question for Adnan Syed is whether or not he's going to get a new trial. This is the Serial guy. The guy from – I don't want to say the Serial killer because that makes him sound like he's a Serial killer. He's not a Serial killer. He's a person that was covered in the first season of the podcast Serial. Now, Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney who herself is under indictment. By the way, isn't Baltimore a great town where the the head prosecutor herself is under indictment? I mean, isn't that something where where you you picture all these indicted people lined up complaining about the system and getting screwed by the system and how they've been indicted and how they've been wrong. And, um, you know, you, you see all these people lined up. Oh, boy. Gee, you know, those bastards, they indicted me. They're trying to send me to jail. And then the guy next to that person says, yeah, me too. Those bastards. Boy, oh, wait a minute. Aren't you the person that indicted me? Yes. Yeah, I'm the state's attorney, actually. Only in Baltimore, kids. Only in Baltimore. So at trial, more than what Marilyn Mosby is saying is that the decision to drop charges or not on Adnan Syed is going to be based on the DNA. And I think this is a pretty reasonable pretty reasonable position. Here is Marilyn M- Mosby. This is courtesy of CBS affiliate WJZ. So if that DNA comes back inconclusive, I will certify that he's innocent. If it comes back to two alternative suspects, I will certify that he's innocent. If it comes back to Adnan Saeed, the state is still in a position to proceed upon the prosecution. So at trial more than two decades ago, DNA analysis did not help Baltimore prosecutors convince a jury to find Adnan Saeed guilty in the killing of his ex-girlfriend. 22 years later, the results of new DNA analysis on evidence collected in that 1999 homicide could be the last bit of information that Marilyn Mosby needs to drop the charges against Saeed. When a Baltimore judge overturned Saeed's conviction on September 19th at the request of the prosecutors, Saeed remains charged with murder, and uh, Mosby's office has 30 days to decide whether to bring him back to trial or to dismiss him. So um, we'll see where the DNA goes. It's very fascinating to watch. It's uh, fascinating to me anyway. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on any of these. One, two, three, four. Four open lines. 800-848-9222. Larry in Long Island has been holding a while. Let me get to him first. Hello, Larry. How are you there? Hey, Frank. 
Hi, Frank. With all with all of the horribleness in this in this country, and how it's getting so much worse, I have a pressing issue. Just to prove how shallow I am, you talked about a subject tonight, and you've talked about it before. When I was a kid, uh, my friends' mothers, if my if my friends cursed, their mothers would wipe their mouth with soap. Please don't do that. My mother was more vicious. What she would do, she would, she would feed me two tablespoons of tab. What? You didn't like tab? Tab was the most vile. I've never, it's just, it's, it's liquid chemical, Frank. I don't know <laughs> what happened to you. I mean, somewhere when you were a kid, I'm not kidding, somebody fed you something maybe like, a hot lasagna that didn't get a chance to cool off and did something to your to your inside of your mouth. Horrible, Frank. What happened well, to you? You know what? You know, it must have been in going with that story from the first hour. My mom must have drank a lot of diet soda while she was pregnant me, with me. That must have been uh, it. Uh, but uh, I like Tab. I am. Uh, I'm sticking with it. By the way, if you want to um, help us save Tab, the soft drink. You can go to SaveTabSoda.com. I'm not in, I'm not a member of this group. I interviewed the first day they launched. I interviewed the uh, the founder of this group, and uh, I'm wishing them the best of luck. Certainly, but uh, SaveTabSoda.com. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey Frank. Uh, first off, I want to congratulate you on your uh, anniversary today your wife, Rachel, uh, many more. Um, as far as the um, death penalty with mentally ill people, I think they should be executed. I mean, whether you're, you know, if you commit a crime, and I know they say they don't know what they're doing, but they did commit a crime, and I do think they should be executed, and I think they should reinstitute the death penalty in New York State, and we would cure a lot of the problems. That we currently have right now, Frank. Well, have a okay. Good night. Uh, but Joe, hang on. Don't hang up yet. You still there? Um, okay. So um, I was going to say, so let's say the scenario played out exactly as you described it. Let's say someone is so seriously mentally ill, and putting aside Benjamin Cole, because uh, let's assume Benjamin Cole had at least some awareness of what was going on. Although, if you look at the nature of his crime, it's difficult for me to understand how anybody could could do something like that consciously and then go play video games after. But um, let's assume someone is legitimately delusional. They have no idea what's going on. They think that their uh, wife has, is is a demon. And they think that uh, they have no idea what's going on. They're hallucinating. They're suffering from serious paranoid schizophrenia and delusions. Uh, Is it really fair to hold a person like that to the same penalty as someone that is smart, intelligent, brooding, and makes the calculated decision, plans for weeks, and commits a premeditated murder, goes to great lengths to commit that murder, tries to get away with it. Is it the same? Is it right morally? Forget about legally. Is it right morally to hold that delusional, mentally ill person to the same standard as that brooding, plotting, planning, premeditating murderer? I say yes, because if that person was to get out down the road many years from now and 
you know, listen, if they're not being controlled by medication and the medication's not working and they killed somebody and they do get out, most likely they're going to kill again. I mean, it's like an, it's like a dog, Frank. Once they taste blood, they keep going back for some more. I agree with you, what you're saying about somebody that's, uh, you know, highly intelligent. And, you know, a lot of these mentally ill people are very intelligent. It's just, it's a chemical imbalance. Um, but I personally think it, an eye for an eye. If you kill somebody, you should be killed. All right. Thank you, Joe. I um, I have a tough time with that. Right? I'm not talking about letting anyone out. Right. I mean, if you commit a murder, especially the kind of murder that Benjamin Cole committed, if you commit a murder, um, a brutal murder, you know, that way of an innocent person, I'm not talking about death penalty or freedom. I'm talking about death penalty and life in prison with no chance of reprieve or parole. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. As you know, I'm a new father, and my son Carmine means the world to me. I was shocked to hear that choking takes the life of a child every five days. So scary, I knew that I needed to get a life vac, a choking rescue device that has saved hundreds of lives. It's a safe, easy-to-use, airway clearance device made in the USA. There was a mom that recently saw her son choking, and he stopped breathing. She tried back blows unsuccessfully, and thank God she had a life vac. With just one pump, she was able to remove the sandwich and save her child. There are countless stories like this across the nation, and so many people are forever grateful to Arthur Lee for creating life vac. Choking can take a life in four to seven minutes. Don't let this common tragedy destroy your family. Every home, school, restaurant needs a life vac. Visit LifeVac.net to learn more. That's LifeVac.net. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Randy Newman singing about Baltimore. Uh, Randy Newman is uh, a terrific, terrific artist. And uh, someone who uh, has sung about a number of different cities, including Cleveland. A, a terrific singer, if ever there was one. So, you know, today is a couple of interesting days. Today is not only my anniversary, but uh, today happens to be, and I did not know this until my mother uh, wished me well for this particular occasion. Today is National Sons Day. Not the Phoenix Sons, but uh, if you have a son... It is your day, or if you are a son, imagine if you're like um, Perry uh, Perry Como, the seventh son of a seventh son. So uh, it is National Sons Day. I'm going to find an appropriate photo of uh, young Carmine to post on my Facebook page in honor of National Sons Day because I'm quite proud of him. Uh, if you uh, you could see it, I'm going to post it on my Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/moranofan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Uh, Speaking of uh, things that are worth posting, I saw a little bit of AI art that was created from a text prompt from our own Matt Blaze. Uh, Matt Blaze, these are two interesting works of art that you sent me here. Uh, Yes. Explain to me what these are. So... On Night Cafe, which is what we've been using mm-hmm. for AR. They I have use a couple, but that's one of the ones that I use. One of the ones that we use. They have some new uh, designs of how you can create art because you have to pick a style. So this is a new style that is CGI. It's a CGI character. Mm-hmm. So I sent you one of Curtis Lewa that looks like Curtis... It does look like him. It does. It, it looks like kind Curtis. of a superhero. Like, yeah, as, as a, uh, the Incredibles. You ever see The Incredibles? Yeah, right. It like looks the, like he's in The Incredibles. Sort of like The Incredibles wearing a red sweatsuit, but with like a Mario from like Nintendo Mario, like yes. a Mario hat. Yes. Yes. No, that's a good description. Um, and and what's the, the other one? The other one is Alex Barnard, where, where he looks, I, I, is that a fish or an alien? With big glasses and big <laughs> eyes. You know, it's funny. Did you give him a? Did you give the um, the AI creator a starting point for Alex Barnard? No, I no. mean I just put in uh, it, the starting point is the same thing. Because CGI. That's the CGI uh, character. Is even, what it's called. even though it does, it's even though as you said, it's like an alien or something, right? There is something about it that does look a little like <laughs> Alex Barnard. And that's the funny thing. So I, if you didn't give them a picture, how no. did they come up with that? I, I don't know. So you've got to post both of these in the in the Facebook group. Okay? And, and, and there's another one of you. Oh, is there? Jeez. That I, I, didn't, oh, I, I will send that to you now. <laughs> God, I'm afraid to look at that. Can you, this is post kind of, all three in the, in the Facebook this group. This is kind of a weird one. Can, well, will you post all three in the Facebook group? I will group? just post it, and you can look at it in all the right, Facebook group. I will look at it in that? the Facebook group. If you want to see the AI art Created by uh, Matt Blaze, you can do so uh, by searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters. See, I'm having a tough time uploading a photo to Facebook. I'm trying to, I found a good Mm. photo of young Carmine that I want to upload, but it's uh, it's given me a hard time in doing so. Interesting. I'm going to get back to your calls in a second, but um, we had a, we had a call scheduled. Yeah, you usually I get up around one thirty, two o'clock, or 
my wife will wake me up so that I can look after our son. And I had a call scheduled yesterday at 2 o'clock with a client, right, a potential advertiser on this show. Great product. It's a product that I'm looking forward to telling you more about in the future. I don't want to get into it now because I don't want to be accused of giving them a, a free commercial and get in trouble or anything. But the call was scheduled for 2 o'clock. And I had all sorts of alarms scheduled to go off. Well, what happened? Before I fell asleep this morning, my mobile phone died. And I slept past 2 o'clock. I slept till about 2.15. And I didn't immediately look at my phone because I had forgotten about this call. And my wife hands me my son because she had work to do. And I end up just playing with my son and entertaining him for 20 minutes. And then my phone gets enough of a charge. And I turn it on. And I see I have all these frantic calls and SMS text messages and emails from Leslie, one of our account executives that work here. And um, she said, well, what happened? We were supposed to do this call at 2 o'clock. And I never do this. I never sleep past a call, a business call like this. I mean, this is really unusual for me to oversleep and forget forget about this. So um, she said, I said, well, is there any other time that we can do it? So she says, let me see if I can round everybody up. Sure enough, she get, rounds up everybody on the call, and I felt terrible. I apologized profusely. I did this great call with the people whose product this is. They're all terrific. They answered all my questions. Very patient with me, even though I'm sure this was a major inconvenience to this day. I really can't describe how embarrassed I was at at having overslept here and uh, and missed this uh, this scheduled call. But everyone was super cool about it. So we're going through this uh, call and everything, and they said, "All right, well, have you, you've gotten the product right? Have you tried it?" I said, "No." I haven't gotten it yet. I'm expecting it any day. And they said, whoa, hold the phone. We have a, a record that um, this product was delivered to you on September 19th. I say, well, well wait a minute. I, no, I didn't get it. I said, are you sure that the address that you have is 3 Avenue? And they said, uh, oh, no, we don't have three avenue. We have 145 court apartment 1H. And I said, no, that's my old address. I lived there. I moved out of there two years ago. And they said, well, that's where we sent it. That's the address we have. And I've noticed that sometimes work still has that on some of my records. Even though I've tried to change it, they still have that. So we were in this call, and I said, all right, we're going to send you a new one. I said, I'll reach out to the building and see if they have it before you waste another one because it's kind of an expensive product. And Leslie says, I've been sending you all sorts of stuff there for the last two years. And so I reach out. To the um, the person that was the building, um, the property manager when I when I lived there, and I said, "Subject packages." I still had her email. I emailed. I said, "Hi, Arlene. How have you been?" Now I have to tell you, this woman when I lived there, uh, she was not the most helpful person in terms of a property manager. 
In fact, I can't think of a single time that she was actually helpful to me without uh, me needing to uh, ask 900 times. I mean, she was not at all helpful. This was a tough building to live in. I I liked it, but my wife hated it, right? And it's funny. I was looking at some photos because today is our wedding anniversary. I was looking at some photos from our wedding three years ago today. And the thing that I took note of is that aside from being a bit heavier now, which, I mean, that, that happens. I go, I go up and down. I could be back in fighting shape in, in 40 days, right? But the thing, the thing that I took note of is how many more gray hairs I have now versus when we got married three years ago. And I guarantee you a substantial number of those gray hairs were from my wife complaining about the circumstances of our prior building. But putting wow. that aside... So I write to Arlene. I said, hi, Arlene. How have you been? Uh, Miss you and everyone at that facility. Um, An advertiser indicated they'd sent me a package to my old address on September 19th. I was wondering if it was still there by any chance. Also, uh, I didn't realize that anyone was still sending anything there. So I figured I'd check. I'd check in to see if you had anything else for us. Thanks in advance, Frank. Because keep in mind, Leslie has told me she's been sending packages there for two months. I mean, yeah, no, two years. They must have a whole box of stuff, a whole room of just stuff that was earmarked for 1H. That's what Leslie said. She's sending all sorts of stuff there. So I get an email back from a woman named Rona, who's the site assistant manager. Her response, hi, Arlene no longer works here. But I can tell you that I haven't seen anything with your name on it. I said, uh, all right, Rona, thanks. This package says it was delivered on September 19th. They have the tracking number. I mean, I'd hate to put you out, but can you maybe ask whoever's living at apartment 1H now, knock on their door, say, excuse me, did you get a package that you didn't order that's addressed to someone that's not you? If so, can we have it? And if so, I'll come pick it up. Um, so far, I've not heard back. But it's nice to see that the people that run this building are just as unhelpful now as when I lived there. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, I have figured out, I restarted my phone, and I have been able to uh, figure out how to post a photo of Carmine in honor of National Sons Day. So you can see that photo. This is a photo of him playing on our uh, on our floor. So you can see that at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. All right, Frank. Um, my opinion, of course, only. But the mentally ill, I mean, they've got to have some kind of track record, you know, from when they was diagnosed, like from a child or a teenager or something. And so why are they still thrust out into society with no structured supervision or maybe institution? You know, because they definitely shouldn't be out on the street. And I I believe that the mentally ill, they, they go through phases too. Like, a lot of them are scared of the hospital. They get in front of the doctor... They try and act normal. You know, they try to be manipulative because they don't want to act out and have the doctor lock them up or something. You know, I think they try to play a slick game like that, too. 
because uh, they, you know, even though they met to, they don't lose all of their instincts. You know, they they know how to be slick. You know, they've seen things. You know that they can copy. But um, man, I mean, if they are that bad to do something that they did so vicious, I mean, they're not responsible, man. I mean, no, I, it's, I'm it's with a you. hard call. It's a hard call. They say a murderer should be killed. I mean, come on, man. Only if it's not happening to your people. Yeah, that sounds good. Because, ah, man, I mean, they shouldn't have been out there in the first place. And for doctors to say that he's sane enough, I mean, what mental condition is sane enough? Yeah. Well, so you you think essentially no matter how brutal the crime this guy committed was, he should not be executed while he's suffering from this kind of mental illness. No, because look how look where his mind is to do what he did. Right, absolutely. That way, absolutely. Look how bad he is. You hey, know, so no, I, 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 hear not, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Fugazi, Tom, hang on. I want you yeah. to uh, listen to and then respond to uh, Ron in Michigan. Ron, what's your take on this? He should have been executed right away. He was allowed to uh, uh, foster his uh, uh, supposed mental illness, really to uh, perfect his uh, scam and continue living and continue eating, continue uh, sucking the life out of uh, plain and simple. So you think you think out, he's faking If he got out, he'd kill again. So you think he's faking Yeah, I think he's faking, yeah. And, and when he wasn't faking, it, it allowed him to continue – and they learn how to fake even better. Hey, uh, he's so doing a real good job. Fugazi Tom, what about uh, Ron's supposition? He's basically saying the same thing that uh, the state's attorney's uh, office is saying, that uh, he's faking this. He's manipulating the system to try and get out of being executed. What do you say to that? Well, like I said already, he can't be faking it and diagnosed as mental. Nobody is mental sometime or half the time and all that. He's mental now, but he wasn't mental when he did that. Either he is or he isn't. And the guy that's talking now knows nothing about that man. To say that he's lying is a scam. You know, see, that's why this man is going to death row for people who just don't care. Just don't care. Well, it's difficult to have. Honestly, Tom, though. And I don't think we should be in the habit of executing mentally ill people. That being said, it's difficult when you look at the the details of his crime that he committed. It's a difficult person to have any sympathy for. That being said, I understand what you're saying, which is that no sane person could ever commit a crime like this. Uh, Ron, I'll give you the last word to respond to Tom there. When you say no sane person could commit a crime like that, <clears throat> you have mafiosa who kill hundreds of people and and they, in the most heinous ways. Not they, like that. They, Not like that. Not like that. You don't know like that. You don't know like that. They chop them up into pieces while they're alive. You don't know. Well, you like don't know that. either. You don't know either. Then you don't know either. You just a, a, a hateful person, man. Don't care about nobody, yeah, man. Right. These them. people I hate are people who kill innocent people. I hate them. Oh, and I kill yes, them granted. I'm with you on that. But if a person is that bad, he he has no knowledge of what he's doing. Is it his fault? I understand what you're saying, but come on, man. I mean, that's just like just killing an innocent. Don't person. let him do it again. Then. Then don't let him do it again. Kill him.
Kill him before that's he kills the defendant. Okay, that's how you feel, then. That's how you feel. But, but Until Ron, it happens but, to you or your family, that's how you feel. Okay, I understand. Uh, Ron, thank you, uh, and uh, Tom, thank you. Uh, well, well argued on both sides. I think we got a pretty good indication of both uh, both ends of the spectrum on that one. Uh, very quickly, um, this, they were supposed to have this hearing today. This January 6th committee hearing. I, I can't believe we're still doing this. Are we still going through all this? I'm not trying to minimize what happened on January 6th, but it's been two. It's been we're almost it's almost three years since this occurred. We're still going through all this. And and I, I'm not saying that the people that participated in the riot shouldn't be punished. I'm all for punishing them. Throw the book at them. Right. But to the fact that Congress is still holding hearings on this with everything that's going on with inflation and the border and crime and climate change and the economy and Congress is still worried about this. Let the criminal justice system do its job. Let the prosecutions go forward and let Congress focus, focus on public policy issues. But anyway, so what was supposed to happen today in this committee hearing has been delayed because of the uh, hurricane. The committee obtained footage from these documentary filmmakers um, that were following around Roger Stone. And this was excerpted on CNN. And in this footage, Roger says some very wild, very incendiary things, at least in the clips depicted. This is... um, this is one of the footage, one piece of footage that CNN showed from the documentary filmmakers, and it was supposedly going to be played by this congressional committee today. Let's just hope we're celebrating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. But when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. Yeah. You're wrong. F*** you. Uh, some other incendiary things in it. First of all, and the first question I'm going to ask Roger tomorrow, if he or if he comes on, is why are you letting these guys follow you around? I mean, you're clearly allowing them a level of access to you, which very few people have, or these guys. So um, there's all sorts of quotes uh, that uh, Stone is caught on video saying, basically uh, trying to get a pardon. He says at one point, F the voting, let's get right to the violence, shoot to kill. Um, all sorts of other things of that nature. So anyway, we were going to have Roger on tomorrow after this committee hearing and to talk about the AI art that I helped create regarding him. And I think, you know, that's the plan. So Roger sends me a text message yesterday, the following, 624 in the morning. Keep in mind, I've known Roger for 22 years, right? We're tight, right? We've been through some battles together and uh, we, you, you know, I knew him when no one, when no one would give Roger the time of day, when he was a fringe guy. Uh, he and I, we've been working on campaigns together, on media projects together, and known each other socially for 22 years. When he was on trial, I had a fundraiser and contributed to his legal defense fund. We, we go back a ways. We're friends, even though I've often disagreed with not only his politics at times, but his tactics. This is... Um, what he said to me yesterday. If, by the way, this is unsolicited, I think, oh, actually, uh, yeah. 
So if, by the way, this is going to be one of those gotcha things you've done to me twice and then and then we're not going to do it. I said, what do you mean? Let me know what you don't want to talk about. If there's anything that's off limits, uh, I want to ask you about it. And he says, playing with Credico tape without warning me, I'm not going to react to clips from CNN that are out of context. I spoke about the BLM Antifa riots at the time, but today they're being depicted as being just before the election. I didn't even know what he was talking about because I hadn't seen these clips. I said, Roger, you don't want to come on. Don't come on. I'm not going to agree to limit my scope of uh, relevant questions. Now, if you say you don't want me to ask about, uh, you know, some uh, an alleged affair that you had or swinging or something like that, a personal issue, I won't ask you about it. But if it's something that's in the news that you're involved in, I'm going to ask you about it. I said, Roger, you're not doing me any favors by coming on this show. I said, if you want to come on, be happy to have you. If you, you don't want to come on, fine. Long list of people that do. So we'll see. I'm not sure if Roger will end up uh, coming on the show tomorrow. I think he probably will. I think he was just kind of venting and blowing off steam because he was not happy with some of the coverage. But it was very interesting. He had never, uh, he had never taken issue with any of my interviews before and labeled them as gotcha journalism. And I don't think that's what I do at all. I try to ask everybody the most challenging question that I can, when they're, whether they're friends of mine or not. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight, 800-848-9222. If you haven't done so yet, please be sure to subscribe and download my podcast, The Racket Report. And uh, my guest this week is uh, longtime investigative journalist Peter Lance. We explore the relationship between Greg Scarpa, a gangster, and Lindley DeVecchio, an FBI agent. And I asked Peter Lance how it all began. If. Greg Scarpa Sr. began cooperating with the FBI in 1961, 1962. I would imagine a lot of that would predate his relationship with DeVecchio. Do we know when he began yeah. working with DeVecchio directly? Yeah, so he was uh, he worked with a guy named Anthony Villano, and I need to tell you a little bit about their unique relationship. Tony Villano was a brick agent. In fact, he wrote a memoir called Brick Agent, which is what you know, street FBI agents uh, refer to themselves as where I'm a brick agent. I'm not management. Kind of thing, yeah. And so uh, Tony, he worked with Tony until 75 and then he got, was getting very violent and, and he was getting sloppy and Tony was drinking a lot. And, Gre- and meaning and so Greg, was, Greg was getting violent and Greg sloppy. Senior was particularly violent, but, but Tony, I should, well, I didn't mean Greg was getting sloppy. Tony was getting sloppy. He had a real alcohol problem mm. and he was getting, you know, and, and, and it was starting to, uh, some of what was going on with Greg was, was the truth of what was going on was, was getting to the brass in Washington. Every single, virtually every 
two months, there would be an, an FBI memo that would say this is this reformant is nonviolent and reliable and trustworthy. You know, they kept putting those admonitions into Washington, D.C., while these guys are wreaking havoc on the street. Please, they pay very close attention to the podcast numbers around here. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Racket Report. They pay very close attention to the number of downloads. We need everybody downloading it, wabcradio.com, podcasts, and the Racket Report. Or you could just search the Racket Report on any podcast app. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. There were a bunch of international stories that I wanted to comment on. And, I, you know, normally when there are a bunch of stories, we'll either throw them into the wheel of topics to potentially be talked about or I'll try to craft a narrative connecting everything to one another. But I thought what we might do uh, this morning, because I would like to keep things unpredictable, you know, um, I thought we might, what we might do this morning is sort of do like grocery stores do in terms of food, right? They have the pasta aisle, they have uh, whatever aisle, or whatever, and they have the international food aisle. So I have a bunch of international stories that I want to comment on. Why don't we do it in one, the international topic segment? So a bunch of international stuff that I'm going to get to within the next minute or so. It's funny. We went to the grocery store. My wife and I went to the grocery store on uh, Saturday, I believe. And um, Saturday or Sunday, I don't remember. And um, my wife and I have very different methods of shopping. And we went together. We went with Carmine to the grocery store, a little family field trip. And my wife, her method of shopping is she works. She brings a list of the things that we need to purchase. And then she looks for those items. And then she will purchase those items. That's her method. My method is not that. My method, and this is why she does most of the shopping. My method is you don't necessarily bring a list. Maybe you have a list. Maybe you don't. But you go through every single aisle in the grocery store to see if there's anything that looks good or that you might want or that you didn't even know that you needed. And then you grab it. Throw it into your grocery cart. That is exactly my method. That's your method as well. Absolutely. It's remarkably effective. And I love it because um, I, I will go up and down these aisles and uh, I'll say, to, uh, Rachel, did we go down this aisle yet? No, we don't need to go down that aisle. There's nothing we need in there. Well, let's see. Let's see what's in there. Let's go. Let's walk. In fact, me doing it, it's almost OCD. Like I have to go so down I. every oh, 100%. aisle. 100%. I don't know how people shop without going yeah, down exactly. every aisle. And, uh, so I'll end up throwing these things in the grocery store. Well, honey, you're always asking me to open jars. There's a jar opener, right? There's a thing that you put over the jar and you get. Oh, there's a there's a there's a 
whatever, a bowl cover, right? Oh, we need a bowl cover. Okay. And then Rachel sees these things that I throw in there, and she takes them out, right? So it's this, it's this constant battle. But I get stuff in there. I do. I do get stuff in there. And then so we pay our groceries, and we wrap up. Our bill was, I forget what our bill was. I think it was something along the lines of, I want to say it was $250 there, thereabouts, right? It was, it was it might have been more than that. It might have been $280. She said to me after we finished, boy, that's the most expensive grocery bill I've had in a long time. I said, honey, you're just another victim of inflation. She said, no, I'm not. I took you with me, and you end up throwing all this stuff in there that I would never purchase. I'm a victim of frankflation. So... Some people are victims of inflation, outflation, stagflation, dragflation. My wife, she's a victim of frankflation. Happy anniversary, honey. All right. um, So in the international story aisle, let's talk about the yuan. The yuan is the Chinese currency. China's yuan passed a key line in the sand last week against the U.S. dollar, and it continues to tumble. The weakening yuan is a sign that policymakers and investors are growing more concerned about the world's second largest economy, which uh, is struggling for a whole bunch of reasons. In the recent past, Chinese officials have been leery of letting the yuan cross the seven per dollar threshold, meaning they don't want the yuan to be worth less than um, than that, meaning seven yuan for one dollar. That's sort of a line in the sand for them. Um, they've only done so in periods of intense stress like the trade war under President Trump and in the early days of COVID. But that level was breached last week. And yesterday, one dollar could get you as much as... yuan. A weaker yuan, though. And I know a lot of people are hearing this say, Yeah, those damn Chinese, they gave us the COVID. Their their Chinese food orders are always wrong. We want their currency to tumble. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone, those of you that still use a landline. It's not let's not all start celebrating Chinese China's demise yet. General So still has a few military strategies left up his sleeve. The fall in the price of yuan, well it's great that the dollar is stronger compared to the yuan and it's great that China is not necessarily on a path to overtake us as G1 at least not anytime soon. It's not all good news economically for us, and here's why. A weaker yuan, their, their currency, the yuan, a, and I want you to keep in the, this in mind because especially if you watch the financial markets, I don't know that they're going to cover this. This is the kind of thing that requires the ability to be able to add 2 plus 2, and not everybody's always able to add 2 plus 2 and say that on television. So anyway, a weaker yuan is going to make Chinese exports to the U.S. more attractive since they'll be cheaper for U.S. buyers. So what that does, China already exports a ton of stuff to our country. And it was in part all the stuff that China was sending here pretty cheaply that led to President Trump pushing for those 
Chinese tariffs to begin with to sort of level the playing field so U.S. manufacturers could compete with, for American consumers. Now, with the fall in the price of yuan, it's going to be even cheaper for us to buy stuff from China. And when I say stuff, I don't mean just junk. I don't mean just things that you typically think of as Chinese goods like Tsingtao beer and chopsticks. No, everything, whether we're talking drugs, whether we're talking food, whether we're talking medicine, whether we're talking garments, shoes, children's toys, um, industrial products. You know, if you heard that interview that President Trump did with John Katsimatidis, that can include parts in cars, including uh, a lot of the fundamentals that are needed for an electric vehicle. Um, So that means this could make, ironically, the fall in the Chinese currency could make things even worse for American manufacturers that have to compete with Chinese companies. So be leery of that and just keep that in mind. The uh, value of the yuan is tied to an official price the government sets each day after which they allow the currency to fluctuate 2% in either direction in trading markets. Don't you love those communist countries where they manipulate the currency like that? So China set the official price for the yuan at 7.0298 per dollar yesterday. That is the lowest the yuan has been since July of 2020. So we look at the stock market and say, how low can it go? The the British are looking at the pound and the Chinese are looking at the yuan and saying, how low can it go? So while policymakers are allowing depreciation, they don't want it to happen too quickly. So the Chinese Central Bank yesterday announced a new rule that's going to make it more costly for investors to sell yuan and buy dollars under certain foreign exchange contracts. So we'll see that. Also in China, and I'm mentioning this story because this is a cautionary tale, not only to the rest of China, but the rest of the world, and especially to the United States, because we're going into the winter months now. We got monkey pox going crazy among certain communities. They're saying the flu is going to be bad this year. And I'm sure once people get in, start interacting with folks indoors again, you're going to hear about Omicron, Delta variant, Gamma variant, Beta variant, whatever variant. And I'm sure you're going to hear about COVID. This is so important when we think as a country and as other countries think about how to fight the COVID pandemic. Now, we've already chronicled the problems that the lockdown led to children being abused, children falling behind in schools, drug addiction going up, alcohol addiction going up, drug overdose deaths going up, all sorts of problems economically, obesity going up, uh, workplaces being shuttered, a lot of problems with the pandemic, supply chain being disrupted, all due to the lockdowns, the lockdown. And you have to wonder, you remember, remember when President Trump was in office even though he allowed a lot of this lockdown to take place. And if there is a primary between DeSantis and Trump, I suspect, not I suspect, I've heard that this is going to be one of the key issues that DeSantis hammers Trump on is locking down the economy and keeping people like Fauci in place. But 
Trump said something during this whole debate that I thought he was right on the money. You can't have the cure be worse than the disease. And let's look at what happened. what's happening in China. China is dealing with a, another COVID outbreak, and they have a zero COVID policy. They don't want anybody getting COVID. Well, they're not doing so great. So they lock down whenever there's a blip of COVID in China. And as of now, at least 22 people died, not of COVID, but of starvation in a single day in one city, one city in Xinjiang, amidst harsh COVID lockdowns and insufficient government support for those forced to quarantine. Think about that. 22 people died of starvation in one city because of these lockdowns. And uh, China's strict information controls, they make it difficult for outsiders to assess the extent of how bad this crisis is right now. But a few weeks ago, Uyghurs in Xinjiang began posting on Chinese social media that they were facing extreme food shortages in lockdown. But those posts were quickly removed by censors. So uh, I hope that we look at this and we say that's not going to be us. I hope every country looks at this and says um, this is not going to be us. Now, let's look at Iran You know what's happening in Iran? In Iran, there's all sorts of protests going on right now. And uh, you got to hand it to these protesters. These protesters have been very uh, brave, knowing the regime that is in power in Iran won't think twice about killing you. A deadly situation in Iran has resulted in Internet blackouts for its 80 million plus citizens. And now the U.S. government and private companies are scrambling to get Iranians back online. Masha Amini, 22 years old, died in police custody three days after she was arrested by Iran's morality police for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly. Authorities claim she died of a heart attack, but her family alleges she was beaten by police. Since then, at least 41 people have died amidst these widespread protests. The Iranian government has restricted Internet access and social media platforms, which, by the way, it also did amidst deadly protests over fuel prices three years ago. And that means not only can citizens not communicate with one another, or that means they can't even document what's happening. They can't even tell people what's going on. And that's bad news, this lack of information. So you might think, why don't these Iranians... Just go, why don't these Iranians just go on Twitter? Why don't they just go on Facebook? Why don't they just go on the YouTube? Why don't they go on Snapchat? Or uh, why don't they go on, uh, if they're banned from Instagram, why don't they go on Rumble? 
or Trump Social or Truth Social, whatever it's called. Ah, yes, once again, we can thank those good old sanctions. These U.S. sanctions, which are causing poverty wherever they're implemented. They're causing children to starve and people in general that aren't children to starve wherever they're implemented. These sanctions, which allow dictators like Kim Jong-un and insert dictator here to point the finger at the big bad United States and say it's their fault that you're suffering. These sanctions on Iran have restricted Internet services to personal communication, blogging, social networking, messaging apps. It's banned. American companies, including social media companies, they're not able to operate in Iran because of these idiotic sanctions. Now, if we didn't have these sanctions in place, these brave protesters would be able to use American technology and social media from American companies, even companies that I've been critical of on free speech issues, to communicate with one another. Now, could the Iranian government clamp down on some of the social media anyway, the way the Chinese government does? Absolutely. But if these people were able to have WhatsApp on their phone and communicate and text message with one another, think of how great that would be for organizing future protests to stand up to the Iranian government. Think of how great that would be for just to be telling the stories about what's happening. So not only these Iranians, excuse me, not only these American sanctions hurting citizens in the places where they are, they're making it more difficult for citizens to organize in an uprising against their own government. I will ask the question again that I have asked a thousand times. What good are these sanctions doing anyone, least of all us? It's helped create a migrant crisis with thousands of migrants coming here every single day because they've led to poverty in Venezuela, and now it's keeping Iranians from organizing. So last week... The U.S. Treasury Department um, issued an updated license allowing U.S. technologies to expand services and platforms. It's about time, I should say. Elon Musk's SpaceX also activated its Starlink service in Iran, though some are concerned about the thousands of smuggled terminals that, that it would require. Well, if we didn't have those sanctions, those terminals would be in there. And Signal has asked the public to help set up proxy servers to help Iranians reconnect to its messaging app. By the way, Internet watchdog NetBlocks has been monitoring Internet access, which you can follow, and um, that's that's been interesting to watch. So, uh, again, to me, this is once again a textbook case in why sanctions don't work. Two other international stories that I want to get to. And then I'm going to get to your calls in a moment at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. These, I both think, are positive stories. Are you? We did a whole segment on augmented reality. Do you remember that? Well, augmented reality is sort of, it's not quite virtual reality where you put on a headset and you see things that aren't there. Augmented reality is you're walking down the street and you see something else. You were looking through your phone, or if you have goggles, if you're lucky enough to have goggles, 
you see what's going um, going on. They'll put like a you know a friend of mine has a restaurant, and he bought a NFT of Captain America. So every time he looks in his phone at his restaurant, Captain America is standing there. It's kind of cool, but that's an example of augmented reality. Well, visitors to Mexico City can now experience the Aztec monuments as they once stood thanks to augmented reality. So you can walk through Mexico. You can walk through Mexico City and see these Aztec monuments as they stood when the Aztecs ran Mexico. It's really neat. So this is from a program that uses augmented reality to overlay computer renderings of temples and markets over the city center for those walking around. How neat is this? I really want to go to uh, I really want to go to Mexico City now and take a look at this. Imagine that you're just walking around Mexico City, you whip out your phone, and you you're looking through your phone and you see, oh, that's where an Aztec temple stood, and that's what it looked like. I think. That um, I think that's really neat. And finally, on the international aisle front, more countries are considering ditching the monarchy. That's right. Uh, We've told you about some of the countries that are moving in that direction. Well, now we are seeing country after country. Um. Think about doing away with the monarchy, in, in meaning the, uh, the British monarchy. There's a whole bunch of countries that were still um, – that were recognizing Queen Elizabeth as their head of state. They collectively call themselves the Commonwealth. Most of them are uh, former British colonies. There are 56 former British colonies in the Commonwealth that still recognize um, – the British crown. And, you know, you have uh, Antigua and Barbuda. They're looking at moving away from it. Uh, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand. A lot of these countries are looking at moving away. So Jamaica, the Bahamas, Antigua and Barbuda, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, not the flavoring in cocktails or Shirley Temples, they, but the countries, they've all said that they intend to hold referendums on becoming republics in, and ditching the monarchy, while Belize has apparently ordered a constitutional review. Can I say that this is about time? I mean, it's just like, what are these countries doing? Why would they – I get that they there was some tradition with Queen Elizabeth, but I think these countries that are moving towards a referendum uh, for a republic, good for them. Have Let people vote. Do we want to play this imaginary reality show game where we pretend to still have this guy that has no power over our country, that maybe hasn't even been to our country, still have this guy on our money? Of course not. This is all so silly. Let these countries – Celebrate their own history, their own heroes, the people that actually have power in that country. This is just so silly that this has continued for as long as it has.
Why? Why should they have King Charles on their money in St. Vincent and the Bahamas? Because his mother was Queen Elizabeth? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's the 21st century. So I say good for all these countries. For And you know what? If you, if you want to keep playing this game of international dress-up and keep the monarch on your money, go ahead. Go ahead. Vote the other way. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Jeff Graham, former mayor of Watertown, in just a minute. But Norman in Brooklyn has been patiently holding. Hello, Norman. Hi, Frank. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about Roger Stone. But when I was when you were talking about getting rid of the monarchy, I was thinking, yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if England gets rid of the monarchy? They can go back to the last time they had but, a republic under Cromwell. Huh. Well, oh, it didn't e- work out great. On, it didn't I'm, work out great back then. Right, but I'm not even talking about England. I'm talking about countries that have nothing to do with England these days, like the Bahamas, St. Vincent, Barbuda. Right. OK, well, let's see. Um, concerning Roger Stone, I love Roger Stone mostly because he's got Richard Nixon tattooed on his upper back. I've often thought of doing that. I, I love Richard Nixon, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that tattoo is really cool. Um, concerning you were talking earlier about the death penalty, uh, I oppose the death penalty uh, under any circumstance. Uh, I'm pro-life. I'm pro-life for babies in the womb, and I'm pro-life for humans uh, in general when they're out of the womb. Uh, I think it's uh, barbaric, uh, although I don't know if somebody killed a member of my family, I probably would want them dead. But I think the only moral reason to kill somebody is in a war situation. Other than that, I don't like my government killing. Yeah, I agree with you, Norman, uh, for many of the same reasons that you stated. Uh, Thank you. But my question really applies to People that are for the death penalty. If you're for the death penalty, are you for the mentally ill getting the death penalty? That, I think, is a new is a new chapter and a new dimension. All right. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000, and then we're going to talk to Jeff Graham. If you want to win some money by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Jeff Graham, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sinatra singing Watertown. You know, this was, uh, I think, Sinatra's only concept album. I love this album. Uh, I this, this is one of my favorite, maybe my second favorite Sinatra album. And I love that Sinatra was willing to take a risk. And I, I really just give so much credit to people, especially entertainers, but all people, that are willing to step outside of their comfort zone 
and try to do something different. And I, I thought that took a lot of gumption, a lot of onions on, uh, on uh, Sinatra's part to do this album. We're going to go live to Watertown in just a second and talk to the former mayor of Watertown, Jeff Graham. But first, we're going to try and give somebody an opportunity to win some money with... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, let us say hello to Edward in North Jersey. Hello, Edward. Hello, Frank. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm great, Edward. Edward, you're familiar with the game, yes. I take it. Yes, I am. Okay, great. Let's Quite get started. Before. Great. Let's get started if you're ready. Okay. What office product has staples in it? Stapler. What singer is famous for the songs Thriller, Billie Jean, and Beat It? Michael Jackson. What state is Walt Disney World in? Florida. Who was the first man to set foot on the moon? Neil Armstrong. What is the middle name of Donald J. Trump? Donald J. Trump. Uh... John. What St. Louis Cardinal slugger recently hit his 700th home run? 700. Starts with a P. Last name P. All right. Out of time there. there. You got me Edward, there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Albert Pujols hit his 700th uh, home run. Pujols. Became uh, only okay. the fourth baseball player in history behind Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, and Barry Bonds to do it. Uh, so, Edward, hang on. Give Kenneth your information, and we will uh, we will send you uh, a prize. Someone who I guarantee you knew the answer to that question is a gentleman who is very well-informed. He is a radio talk show host. He's the former mayor of Watertown, New York, and the owner of the Pearl Street Pub in Watertown, and a guy that was on our show a year ago and two years before that. So whenever it's this date, we call upon him. My old friend, uh, Jeff Graham. Mr. Mayor, it is great to talk with you again. How have you been? Good, Frank. Good. I I would have missed one of those questions, though. Which one would you have gotten wrong? Uh, Trump's middle name. Oh, really? You I, wouldn't have picked yeah, John? I thought it was James or something, but, you know. All right. Well, hey, you, you got plenty of money. You don't need $1,000 anyway. Uh, so right. so be it. Hey, uh, by the way, I was playing that cut from uh, that song, Sinatra, Watertown. How do the people of Watertown feel about that Sinatra album? Well, that was a lot of many, many years ago. I remember it, but... Uh... You know, I think they like uh, other Sinatra songs, uh, Do It My Way or New York, New York. But uh, that particular song is a little bit glum. So I don't it know is. how so, people feel about so it. So you guys don't treat it the way, the way that, say, in New York City, they treat New York, New York, or in Las Vegas, the Elvis song, Viva Las Vegas. It's not like a, a municipal anthem that you guys have. Uh, no, by no means. No. Okay. Uh, that's good to know. Do you, um, do you ever miss being mayor? Uh, not at the moment, no. Uh I had 20 years of it and, you know, had my turn in the barrel and, uh, and I'm enjoying being an outsider. Now, you were elected in a nonpartisan election and uh, Atlantic City, which we, we talk about on Thursdays, they are going to be voting this year 
on converting their system of elections for both the city council and the mayor from what a lot of cities have, including New York City, to um, a system of nonpartisan elections. As somebody that's run in nonpartisan elections and as somebody that's run in partisan elections, like when you ran for U.S. Senate, what do you think of that as a system for cities? Is that something that you think cities should consider, nonpartisan elections? Well, I think there's a lot of merit to it. Uh, Generally, municipal issues, pothole issues, if you will, uh, don't fall into the Republican versus Democrat line. And, um, you know, a lot of times the things you have to do to percolate up through one of the parties, Mm. you know, doesn't necessarily accrue to being a very good mayor. So uh, I think there's merit to it uh, to kind of keep the the party labels out of it. You never will entirely, but uh, I would support Atlantic City doing that, yes. Now, as I mentioned, you did run for U.S. Senate. Uh, the fellow that you, the two people that you ran against in that uh, in that election in 2000 in New York were a Republican by the name of Rick Lazio and a Democrat by the name of uh, Hillary Clinton. Now, six years later, when Hillary Clinton was running for re-election, you actually nominated Hillary Clinton um, to be nominated by the Independence Party. Dick Morris raised with John Katsimatidis on his Sunday radio show the possibility that if Biden doesn't run again, that he thinks that Hillary Clinton is going to try and jump into the presidential race. And we could see a Hillary versus Trump rematch, the same contest we saw in 2016, in 2024. How would you handicap a race like that? And how, how would you be leaning as a voter in a race like that? Well, I definitely would be leaning uh, heavily towards Trump. Uh, I think his policies uh, uh, are better for America. But on the other hand, you know, that type of race, that it just uh, it's picking the scab, uh, if you will. Um, emotions are so strong against both those people. I'm just not sure that really is what America wants. I, I, you know, we've got a whole crew of leaders from Biden on mm-hmm. down who are pretty old and um I think there's a lot of people who would like to see fresh faces. You know, it's funny. I, I, To your point, I did a segment a week or so ago. Maybe you saw the story that one of the few things that Americans across party lines agree with is that we should consider age limits for elected officials. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, you could do that. I remember Strom Thurmond got up to like 100, I think. Uh, currently, Dianne Feinstein is senator from uh, – California, tragically, I don't know if she knows she's senator from California. Mm. She's just a placeholder for Schumer on the roster. And you do end up with situations like that. But you can end up, as there are in Pennsylvania, with a John Fetterman, who certainly isn't old. uh, But there's a lot of question about whether he should be a a U.S. senator. Mm. No, that's for sure. Uh, that is uh, absolutely for sure. All right. Um, you are, as I mentioned, a uh, a tavern owner. Uh, you've been doing that for longer than you were the mayor, right? Uh, yes, 37 years. Wow. How, uh, we've been hearing so much about inflation. We've been hearing about the uh, the difficulty of getting good people to work for you at a reasonable price sure. throughout the economy. How have both of those uh, issues affected you, the cost of labor and inflation and the things that you need to pay to run your business? Well, Inflation, as in cost of product, beer, liquor, so on, uh, yeah, they just keep raising it, and they don't they don't mind doing it. As far as labor, it's got to be an interesting situation. Uh, the, the cost of it is, remember four or five years ago, they had that fight for 15 to get $15 sure. an hour. That's yesterday's news now. I mean, uh, 
they're opening a new Chick-fil-A up here and uh, next month. And I think they're hiring people at 18 to $20 an hour. And some places, uh, places pay even more. So uh, wage rates have gone way up. And the other problem you have is that now there's a lot of good workers out there and I'm fortunate to have some, but there seems to be an ethic now that you don't have to work. We were brought up to believe that at a certain age, you just went out and got a job, but that's not the case anymore. And there's an awful lot of people, and I think it was sort of amplified by COVID, who just don't want to go to work. Mm. And uh, they think they can work from home or they got used to getting the free checks and so on. And I think that's contributing to some of the frustrations. We've got local restaurants up here that are closed Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday because they claim they can't get enough labor. Now, you know, maybe they're not trying hard enough. I don't know. Um, But what you have to pay for labor now is up substantially than from what it was. And that's... uh, you know, just one more challenge. Yeah. So how do you how do you deal with that? Do you, do you end up just passing those uh, those costs on to the consumer? Do you work harder to recruit people to work for you? How do you as a business owner deal with that? Well, I think you have to work hard to recruit the right people so that you can operate lean and mean, if you will, uh, with, with people who can get the job done and are dependable. So I think that's that's a, a, a task for management. Uh, yeah, you work a little harder yourself. Some of it you can pass along in prices, but, you know, people who go to a neighborhood tavern are pretty uh, price conscious. Let me put it that way. Oh, no, I can and, imagine. You Can't know, price 25 cents on a bottle of beer or something, you know, it gets talked about a lot. So uh, that's not all that easy to do as it is in, in chain restaurants or chain stores where you know nobody even pays much attention to what the dollar amount is. So, you know, you just have to work harder and, and try to hire the right people who can, uh, you know, help your business and, uh, and most of all, not hurt it. I am, uh, as I think the audience knows, and if people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Jeff Graham. He's the former mayor of Watertown, New York, and uh, he is the uh, proud owner of the uh, Pearl Street Pub in Watertown. If you're ever in Watertown, be sure to go and uh, check it out. Um, but uh, I am a Seinfeld fan, as a lot of the the audience knows. And a bunch, a few years ago, I read a book. I think it was self published by Michael Costanza, who was a friend of Jerry Seinfeld, and who may be, and he claims to be, the basis for the character of George Costanza. And in that book. Michael describes a trip that he and Jerry made up to Watertown in the 1970s to visit your pub and go on your radio show. I'm wondering, what do you remember, if anything, about a young Jerry Seinfeld coming up uh, to see you and having him on the radio back in the 70s? Well, uh, my recollection of it, I wasn't doing radio at the time and actually uh, wasn't in the pub business at the time. He did come up. A friend of mine, we worked at the public television station together, a friend named Jesse Mitchnick. He was from New York City, and uh, he was working as a technician, and he knew Seinfeld from the club scene down there. This is back before he was really famous. So he arranged for Seinfeld to come to Watertown and perform at a nightclub. I think it was called the Golden Lion. Around what year is this? Is this the 70s? Is it the 80s? Yeah, late 70s, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't mean to dispute the gentleman's. No, no, no. Well, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is disputing many of the things that he says in that book. That's all. You can feel free if Jerry Seinfeld's doing it. I mean, there's there's some. He was up here, and he I did meet him, and um, a colleague of mine uh, from public television and I we interviewed him 
one of the great regrets of my life is we didn't set the film aside somewhere. Um, he was very funny, but I mean, at the time, he just seemed, well, this guy's entertaining. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, he's the biggest thing in the world. So, uh, yeah, and he was very, very cordial person and uh, did a good job up there. I think people were entertained. So, yeah, it was quite a, an honor to have met him at the time. You always look back in life, Frank, at, you know, famous people I may have bumped into along the way, and he certainly is high on that list. So it was not as if you encountered Jerry Seinfeld and you were struck by this incredible charisma and you said, this guy's going to be the, the biggest star in the world one day. Well, I'm not sure you can anticipate that. You know, you meet someone mm. who's uh, early in their career, and yes, they are charming and have charisma and, and they're funny, but, you know, who thinks all of a sudden they're going to be that big? So, no, I mean, we, you know, it was it was entertaining and, and had a good time meeting him and everything, but uh, um, obviously it was a bit of a surprise a couple of years later when he was so big. Oh, sure, I, I can absolutely imagine um you know one of the other things that uh, i mentioned before that you ran as the independence party nominee for us senate uh against hillary clinton back in 2000 you were a leader in the uh, in the independence party for some time there's some talk of a revitalized third party movement as we go into 2024 you have andrew yang and christy todd whitman uh trying to spearhead something called the forward party uh, you have a group called no labels that's currently petitioning and they say they're going to run a candidate that uh, if if the candidates nominated by the Republicans and Democrats are too far to the right and left, respectively, they're going to offer a third party alternative. You have the crypto billionaire Brock Pierce, who's indicated he plans to move forward with a third party run. I'm curious, as somebody that spent so much time not only as an elected official, but as a leader in the third party movement, where do you see uh, the third party movement going in this country? I think it's going to be a pretty rough road. I mean, generally, these third-party efforts revolve around a personality like a Perot, George Wallace, et, et cetera. Um, I, I just, you know, you look at what happened during the pandemic when Cuomo changed all the rules mm. to make it even harder for third parties to get ballot access. And now we've got the first time since 1946, there's only two candidates for governor on the New York ballot, uh, Hochul and uh, Zeldin. There are no minor party candidates, even if you want to cast a protest vote. I think, you know, you remember when Al Lewis. The oh, sure. Grandpa, ran, 1998. And, you know, our friend, the Manhattan Madam and, and some other people were running at least as protest candidates. Uh, but that's not an option this year in New York. And we just got the two of them. Yeah, no, that's a real shame. So let's talk about that race. Uh, the conventional wisdom has uh, Governor Hochul with uh, in the catbird seat in that race, uh, Congressman Zeldin, he's pushing for more debates. Governor Hochul's agreed to one debate. Uh, Congressman Zeldin says that's unacceptable. Uh, Congressman Zeldin's trying to make an issue of um, of uh, crime. He's trying to make an issue of congestion pricing, and uh, he's trying to make an issue of cost of living. Do you see that race uh, being being competitive? Do you think there's a chance that uh, Lee Zeldin might pull that one out? Well, these debates over debates, you know, they happen in every campaign. Mm. I, I, I don't know how much impact they all have. Um, I think the crime issue cuts in Zeldin's favor. You get video like that, that lady in the subway station this week who got the stuffing beat out of her. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. But on the other hand, Hochul has, you know, major public employee unions, um, certainly the traditional baseline Democratic vote. You know, she's pandered heavily to the New York City legislative delegation, Carl Hasty and Andrea Stewart-Cousins Stewart and all of that, uh, so that she has that vote. 
And I don't know what she gets out of the Buffalo area being a Buffalo area native. Um, you know, she did. Uh, she got them the bills in that Buffalo boondoggle over there, right? Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't agree with it. I, I think there's a lot of things wrong with it, not just the money, not just your husband's involvement with it. Um, and the fact that they're building a stadium right across the street from the existing one doesn't seem to be moving the ball in, as far as urban development. But nonetheless, she's doing it. And, you know, I've, I've heard Bills fans say, oh, she got us a new stadium. Right. Well, right. there's got to be more to it than that. Uh, Jeff, do people, in, obviously you're, the people in your county and your city, they vote a lot differently than the people in, in, in the five boroughs of New York City. Do but the population in New York City is so large that uh, essentially I hate to say this, but uh, numerically it doesn't matter how the people in Western New York or upstate vote. How frustrating is that to the residents in your area? That no matter even if everybody in your community votes for one candidate, if New York City goes in the opposite direction, you really have very little control over your own destiny, at least on a statewide level. Is that frustrating? to the folks in your area? Well, I think it is. You often hear the comments that, you know, New York City you know, runs the state and so on. Uh, obviously, if Hulk Hochul walks out of the Bronx with a quarter million vote margin, you know, it's hard to make that up in small upstate counties. Mm-hmm. Um, you can easily win, let's see, the 62 counties. You could even win 55, 56 of them as a Republican and still lose the race simply because Kings County, Bronx, Manhattan, and so on are so heavily um, uh, Democratic. The only one down there that's Republican, I guess, is your native Staten Island. Right, and so, and Staten Island's hardly deep red. I mean, it's a bipartisan county. Sometimes Democrats win, sometimes Republicans win. Well, that's true up here, too. I mean, we have Democratic members of Congress in upstate districts. Uh, obviously, the upstate cities, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, Albany, uh, tend to run Democratic. Uh, so, you know, the margins are not absolute up here, and there's a lot of people who vote Democratic upstate. Uh, it's not a 85 to 15 type margin like you get in some of these um, assembly districts in, in the Bronx or, or so on. Uh, you know, there's still reasonably competitive races. So, um, yeah, people are frustrated by it. Uh, there doesn't You look at the state assembly where there's only 45 or six Republicans out of 150. Uh, there's less than a third of the state senators are Republican. I think people have kind of come to the conclusion that, uh, mm. uh, you know, we got a problem there. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting. Could, I don't know if Hochul can be beat. I would say I'd subscribe to conventional wisdom. I mean, Zeldin's got to do something to break through. It has not been an, an inspiring effort so far. All right. Well, now, uh, Jeff, we're now airing in Baltimore as well. It uh, looks like after the Orioles game yesterday that they're going to have a – uh, tough road to making the playoffs. I, I, I think they're pretty close to being mathematically eliminated from making the playoffs. Is, is there anything that you do as a bar owner to console the fans of a team that are mathematically eliminated? If an Orioles fan comes in the day after they're mathematically eliminated, do you offer them, uh, I don't know, a, a cry-in-your-beer special or something along those lines? Well, you try to respect people's wishes. I mean, obviously, we don't get many Oriole fans. Sure. And the, I, I think the Yankees play the Orioles this weekend. That's right. Uh, so we're all still praying for Judge. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Yankees, of course, won the division title and all that. But Baltimore had a good year. I mean, you look at how the year started for them. Uh, I think they got up above 500. 
uh, played a lot of good ball and have a lot to be proud of. So um, I wouldn't hang their heads too much in Baltimore. All right. Uh, Jeff, it's always great to talk with you. Uh, next time you're uh, downstate, please do let me know. All right. I will. Thank you, Frank, and have a good day. Thank you, Jeff Graham, uh, joining us for uh, our anniversary program. He was with us two years ago when we started the show. With us still. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, now's the time to call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is indeed the other side of midnight, celebrating National Sons Day. I am looking forward to uh, celebrating with my son, Carmine, in uh, just a bit. He usually wakes up right around the time that I get home. So uh, I posted a picture of him, um, and you could check it out at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Definitely has his mother's coloring, his mother's hair, and his mother's light eyes. Uh, but uh, some folks say that uh, he has my... Facial features, but hopefully that's not the case. <laughs> He's a lot more handsome than I am. All right, uh, without further ado, let us give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike in Lake George. Tomorrow, Frank. Great show as usual. I got to give a shout out to my classmate, Steve Jordan, Jordan Lobster. We had a 50th reunion. St. Agnes High School last Saturday. And later on, Frank, I'm going to take a walk in a boardwalk. I'm down here for decades. And if I get into a nice conversation with a lady that's easy on the eyes, later on I'll refer to it as conversational intercourse, rim shot. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Tom in the Bronx. Yes, there are many countries, African countries, that a numerous amount anyway, that joined the, co- the British Commonwealth and they were not colonies of England. And they had to take a, uh, a survey uh, of the members to see if they would let them in. And there's a, because the economics were so bad in those other countries that they joined it. Neil on Staten Island. Yeah, Frank, all of last week I was hospitalized. And the only normalcy I got was listening to this show. God bless you, Frank Morano. God bless you. Well, thank you. I hope you're doing okay now. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, happy anniversary. Um, regarding the electric cars, our uh, utility company just announced a 64% rate hike in our electric bill for the next uh, month or two. 
uh, E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, Frank, your son very much is very more handsome. Yes, I assume so. Uh, but I would like to say, months ago you were talking about baby formulas. You know, the ba- I'm a Generation Xer, uh, and I think the baby formulas of yesterday and the Pampers of yesterday are not the same radioactive decay of today. And finally, Troy in Babylon. This time I'm going to come out to the other room and come out to New York to try to car Come on, Bobon, so I'll try to out. Thank you, Troy. All right, I'll be back uh, tomorrow, supposedly, with Roger Stone and Michael Franzese. Frank Moreno, good dig.